0: Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around. You'll be glad you did.
1: You are here for me to enlighten you. If you
2: ever act like this again, you're barred for life.
3: It's just violent, base.
4: It's kind of embarrassing.
2: If you know your lines, then you can forget them.
3: I
5: get
0: it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello peoples and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me as always is the man who is at the top of Wesley Snipes' personal enemies list for snitching on him to the IRS about his tax problem, Mr. Ryan Seabold!
4: What's up, Jason?
0: How's it going, buddy? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Yeah, dude, that Wesley Snipes situation was crazy, dude. I heard he... uh called you personally and went on some sort of, like, expletive-laden rant. Dude. It was not kind. It, I'll tell you what. It is
4: taxing being his friend. Uh hey, I, hey, no. <laughs> it, Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I try to keep, keep my secrets, keep everything close to the vest, but uh, that man was pushing me. He was pushing me. <laughs> well, it's
0: funny because I actually heard that the only reason you even had to do that in the first place is because you got into a little trouble yourself. And sort of, I had to strike a deal with the government, and they were going after some bigger fish. See, is that is that just rumor or is that true? So
4: now who's snitching on who, bitch? You're gonna, you're gonna <laughs> roll over on me. I see how it is. <laughs> I see how it is. Uh, I didn't have to sign any sort of NDA, bro. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> hey, tell us something about Ryan, and you're like. I R. yes, uh, I will tell you about Ryan. <laughs> that guy uh, <laughs> cuts corners like a NASCAR driver. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, man, we have fun on this show, don't we?
4: Yeah, yeah, uh, until I go to prison. <laughs> I, I think they'll still, le- honestly, I think they'll still let me do this show in prison. I think it'll be okay. I'll just have to... Well, and it's funny, too,
0: because, I mean, all this talk about, Going to prison and and finding yourself in situations where you have to cut deals with uh, somebody that you're indebted to and do something you weren't thinking that you would ever do. That's pretty much the setup for both these films. So, I mean, quite apropos here. Right,
4: right. And I think it'll all end for me – uh like the um jason patrick monologue in your friends and neighbors so it's all one big (laughs) tie-in all one big (laughs) tie-in
0: connecting tendrils ladies and gentlemen yeah that's what we have on this show connecting tendrils (laughs) which is also the name of our third podcast connecting tendrils where we look deep into marine life different octopi things of that nature uh, that's aside from The Muffin Men, of course, which we know you're so all many listening podcasts. to every week and enjoying. So many podcasts. I know, dude. It's 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 exhausting, bro. It's exhausting. But uh, you know what wasn't exhausting was watching these
4: movies this week. Ryan, why don't you hit us up with a description? Play them hits, boy. We have a couple of movies for you today. Uh, the first of which is Buffalo 66 from 1998. Um, and then our second is Murder of a Chinese Bookie by John Cassavetes. Uh, that... That's going to be a great one to talk about. Um, I believe that's both of our first Cassavetes films, so uh, we have a lot to say about that. But first, we're going right into Buffalo 66 from 1998. Uh, IMDb surmises this as, after being released from prison, Billy is set to visit his parents with his wife, whom he does not actually have. This provokes Billy to act out as he kidnaps a girl and forces her to act as his wife for the visit. Um, you know, I was trying to find more like a more verbose uh, summary of this film, and then I realized, you know, it didn't really need it. <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up. And that's yeah, about pretty well it. sums it up pretty well. Yeah. Vincent Gallo stars in this film, along with Christina Ricci, uh, who plays his kidnapped uh, wife, and, yeah, I don't know. 1998. This is Vincent Gallo's directorial debut. Um, he came out swinging with this one. This is about as 90s as a movie as you could get. Absolutely. It just kind of seemed like what a lot of other people were doing at that time, like Harmony Corinne and Todd Sollins and even our buddy Neil Butte. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to make that so, comparison because I'm sure yeah. one of the things you're going to bring up probably has
0: to do with uh, the way that women uh, are treated in the film, I would imagine. And uh, yeah, hearkening back to uh, a couple weeks ago when we did uh, Your Friends and Neighbors. Maybe, maybe not to that degree. I mean, there's no Jason Patrick scene in here, but.
4: What the fuck was going on in 1998? <laughs> right? this is what I have to know. So <laughs> I, I was. I was trying to go back into into the old uh, book of Ryan and think about what I was doing in 1998. And uh, yeah, I mean, was it all the Maxim magazines on the back of our toilets at that time or like... I don't know. Were they putting something in Parliament cigarettes? I just don't understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know the the puka shells had us all fucked up. But Vincent Gallo was a grease ball in this movie. I mean, he just looked dirty. This man needed a shower. You know what uh, it I was, dude? It. He was fresh out of prison. But come on, man, you've been out for a little while. You've had some time to kidnap and uh, and do some other things. Bowl a few games. Uh, he was just a greasy, dirty dude. Okay, so my, my theory
0: on that is that I think that this dude was on a massive amount of cocaine throughout the entirety of this video. That's film. your theory about everybody. <laughs> <That> is, <laughs> you're not wrong about that. However, yeah. and, 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 and this is going to be backed up I didn't even select the clips for this reason, but I was going back and looking at the clips. He sniffs through like half this movie, dude. Every time he talks, stops talking, he sniffs. So you're talking about this dude that's sniffling through the whole movie. He's got these very sort of pinhole eyes. He's greasy. He's got this
4: crazed offset behavior. I'm telling you, dude, all the boxes are checked off. Yep. And bowling is known as the uh, after-work activity of the uh, avid coke addicts. So, yeah. <laughs> all,
0: all those bowlers busting lines off of the uh, bathroom stalls. In the it's old- one of
4: the few sports that you could literally smoke cigarettes while you do
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> they give amazing. you that little table.
4: They give you that, little, that nice, smooth little table to, to carve out whatever you're going to do. And, you know... Bull, uh, uh, bull right down the lane. I'm sure it makes you hyper focused. <laughs> <laughs> no one can knock strikes down like uh, like a cokehead. So uh, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, right. I'll yeah. tell you what, Ryan. Uh, let's actually, because you know we're 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 getting into this. Uh, let's go ahead and let let's officially kick things off by playing the trailer
1: for Buffalo 66. Check it out, guys. What is this? Is this a shifter car? You think that's funny? I'm used to luxury cars. I drive cars that shift themselves. My cars shift themselves. I need you to come to my parents' house with me and pretend to be my wife. Did Billy ever tell you how we met? Billy's the nicest husband in the whole world. Don't touch me. What do you me. mean, don't touch don't me? You're supposed to be husband and wife. No, really. I'm the luckiest girl. What would you say? One, two, three. Get out of the car. I fell madly
5: in love with him. They oh,
1: haven't won a championship since 1966. And I missed that game because that's the day I had Billy. Did you like Buffalo, too?
3: If you fail to convince the court, the
1: very evil and very bad things are going to happen. Can you go to jail or something? Yeah, but he was innocent. Remember that guy in wood? No good. I'd really like to find him. Are you still going to do that bad thing you said you were going to do? He missed that field goal on purpose. He got paid money, and he missed it on purpose. He told somebody turned up to turn up the heat. Where's the girl? I'm his wife. Oh! 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 She's not my wife. What did I just tell you? I'm not looking. just imagining. I picked her up hitchhiking. I'm a free guy, you know? That's not my style. These photos are us in love spanning time. Just look like you like them. That's it. Can you do that?
3: Come here and give me a
1: hug.
3: I know what you're thinking. The story's hard to believe, right?
1: You should have seen him. He was so beautiful.
3: All right, good. Let's see how they are. Come on.
0: All right, Ryan. So here's the thing, man. All right, man. Jason. <laughs> Before we even get into it, I'm going to come out and say it. I think there's a lot to like about this movie. I- I'm just going to okay. kick that off right right off the bat because it, it sounds like maybe you're gonna uh, you're gonna go uh, you know team uh, prosecution on-, on this one. Uh, and I'm you know you
4: always not ask me necessarily okay. not necessarily okay. okay not necessarily not not from a not from a filmmaking standpoint from a content standpoint. Okay. You know what Absolutely.
0: I Well, mean, like. Yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's dive into said content here. Uh, Ryan, where's a good place for us to start? We should start with
4: fucking Vincent Gallo. This guy is a <laughs> crazy, polarizing character uh, in human history, not just in film history. <laughs> this guy, uh, I I don't know if I want to meet him,
0: avoid him, study him,
4: okay,
2: read Ryan, his
0: autobiography. Ryan, I mean, that that wasn't the right answer. The right answer was the beginning because we always start at the beginning and I'm totally going to give you <laughs> plenty <laughs> of opportunities to talk about uh, Vincent Gallo as we progress. But like, I'm so hyped we're, on we're, Vincent Gallo right I, now. I, I think we're close to 10 minutes in and we haven't even begun and, and we always talk about how our shows are getting too long. This is why. Because 10 minutes and we haven't even started the damn movie. Yeah,
4: that's fair. That's fair.
0: <laughs> Okay, so when we begin,
4: at the beginning,
0: this movie, Buffalo '66, starring Vincent Gallo, with sporting performance by Christina Ricci, produced by—no kidding. So we open with a also placard.
4: supporting, by the way, uh, I did not mention Angelica Houston and uh, our buddy Ben Gazzara, who's going to be in uh, Murder of a Chinese Bookie. Later. I was going to say so, he may make an appearance later on in this episode again. Yeah, stage your Ben Gazzara. The old Benny G double feature (laughs) Yes, so
0: when we begin We start, we open with a placard And it's got a picture of a young boy This young boy's name is Billy Brown He is seven years old He was born December 26th, 1966 In Buffalo, New York Giving us our title Buffalo 66, which by the way, Ryan, that kind of means that that's his birthday. And, and, and I think a lot of this film doesn't, doesn't this kind of feel like one of those movies where most of what the main character is going through in the way it's written. Like it's just Vincent Gallo. Like he's just putting things he does. Like he's clearly a great bowler because that's him, you know, throwing strikes one after the other. So like, he's just like, yeah, I'm good at that. Throw it in. Um, that was, that, that was kind of the vibe that I got with this. And of course, You know, he had his dog Bingo there. And there's a song playing over the card that I believe sets up the theme of the character, if not the film as a whole, uh, of which the lyrics are, All this life I've been a lonely boy. And I think that's kind of ultimately, at the end of the day, what this film is about. It's about this main character who really is alone. And we're going to go into all the reasons why you would be justified in not necessarily... Feeling sympathy for him because of that, because he he's a dick, like for sure, and he does some pretty horrible things. Yet, because of the performance, somehow, I found myself still rooting for him. Like I didn't necessarily yeah. dislike Billy, even though there were times where I absolutely did, and especially the way that he treats Christina Ricci, who was lovely in this film. She makes a beautiful blonde. She She's gave fantastic. a compelling performance. Um. Yep. found out she was actually 17 when they filmed this. She was 18 oh. when it was released, but she was only 17 when they actually filmed it. And, uh, you know, we're going to go into, uh, I'm sure, more about how she felt and some things that happened there as we go on. But lovely performance. And so, uh, but did you see who did that song, Ryan? That All My Life Have Been a Lonely Boy song?
4: No, no, I did not.
0: A gentleman by the name of Vincent Gallo.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does play music. So yeah, this guy so- is like balls deep in the New York art scene yeah. and uh, he's got a band and and uh, he does movies and he writes and he acts he paints um i don't know if you saw this but he's homies with basquiat basquiat yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Bas- basquiat. basquiat basquiat yeah that guy and uh, <laughs> yeah uh also homies with our boy uh Julian Schnabel from The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. So oh, wow. uh, Julian Schnabel's actually painted his portrait before um, Vincent Gallo. So, okay. uh, yeah, they all kind of run in that same New York art house circle, kind of like an Andy Warhol uh, knockoff, you know, Kirkland brand Andy Warhol situation. <laughs> you know, yeah. so the velvet underground and, and it, I think there's some serious Warhol velvet underground vibes going on with Gallo uh, in these films that he makes. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, he definitely seems like a like an avant-garde dude. I mean, it's funny
0: because he really, for all of his celebrity, he really only has one other film to his name that actually got distribution. And that was The Brown Bunny, which that yep. had a very controversial screening at the Cannes Film Ooh. Festival. And
4: it was Did you reviled hear about that? as
0: like the worst film to ever screen at Cannes. But then. Did
4: you read about this? i did, roger, yeah. ebert, roger <laughs> yes, ebert
0: go for it that's hilarious. Should,
4: roger ebert called the brown bunny the worst film to have ever screened a con film festival in retort oh by the way let's not watch that movie uh, yeah. i don't care how many blowjobs are in it uh, <laughs> and then in retort gallo called ebert a fat pig with the physique of a slave trader and then ebert follows up with though i am fat one day I will be thin, but Vincent Gallo will still be the director of the brown bunny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, the and then and on? then record scratch, plot twist. By the time the movie gets released theatrically, I believe somewhere between twenty and thirty min- minutes of it have been edited down, and Ebert gives it a thumb up, thumbs up oh, on his wow. program. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. I don't know that they necessarily made up, but it's just, it's a, yeah, this
4: is the, he seems like a weird dude, man. And he doesn't seem like I, a particularly I great say, dude. I uh, Just hypothetically off the record. Uh, did Vincent Gallo show up at Ebert's house? And uh, <laughs> like, I feel like there was some shenanigans going on and Ebert was very scared giving that thumbs up. I feel like it was a, a wobbly shaky thumbs
0: up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, is waste disposal, good? is Roger here? Yeah, right. <laughs> Vincent sends a yep. message. Dead dog yeah. on the floor. <laughs> yeah,
4: right. <laughs> yeah. Anyone seen Siskel? <laughs> Don't worry listen, about it. Listen, I know we needed to get
0: start, but we only made it through a minute of the movie in about seven. <laughs> <laughs> We've got no, to keep going with about. this thing.
4: There's not so much anyways, to talk about. So... <laughs>
0: So after the <laughs> initial song, there's uh, there's some title cards. There are these giant gray title cards uh, that introduce the movie, which just felt, again, so 90s and so indie. And so much about this aesthetic did. Uh, from there, we get these, or rather a wide shot of this guy, and he's leaving jail. And there's, you know, some really nice snowfall. It's kind of a nice image And then we get to like a very long, uninterrupted sort of close up pan on on a on a zoom lens of Billy walking to a bus stop. Right. And and this is very much going to be kind of the aesthetic of this film. And, And if you look at a lot of the films that were coming out with regard to indie cinema specifically in the 90s, this was kind of a often used aesthetic. Would you agree, Ryan?
4: What going to the bus stop? (laughs)
0: no just just the the whole thing using like the long takes and like you know the the they're not professional lighters so there's you know a lot of hot spots with regard to the way that it's lit and they'll just do these long two-minute takes and then all of a sudden they'll switch it up and there'll be a lot of jump cuts as a guy's walking right and there was just like there was there was so many little techniques and then even the uh what do you call them? Like the sort of close up montage that they did, right? Where they would be that square, and it would kind of come from the middle and blow up, and then there'd be other squares kind of coming up. Show. like I thought it was yeah. actually pretty effective, but like it was, it was. It's just an aesthetic that's tied to this specific time, being like the 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 early to mid to late nineties, right? Uh, you know, when Kevin Smith and all all these guys, you know, they all kind of they all kind of used shades of this of similar techniques when they were coming out.
4: Well, like I said, this this feels very much like Gummo. This feels very much like Kids. This feels yeah. very much like Welcome to the Dollhouse. Correct, uh, yeah. Drugstore Cowboy. Uh, all these uh, movies in the uh, early to late 90s, these indie films like you're talking about, there was this, um, the, this little squad of auteurs our to- our that were all kind of doing very similar things. This movie felt very much like Kids to me, uh, and Gummo for that matter, without... You know, having so many weird characters, but it felt very Gummo-esque. I don't know if you've ever seen Harmony Corinne's early stuff, but... Uh, Dude, I've never actually yeah. seen
0: any Harmony Corinne film, to be completely really? honest. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, I've never yeah. seen any I of mean, those. I
4: mean, you know, look, I, y- you kind of seen it. Uh, we just watched it. <laughs> you get it. You just uh, watched it the other say, night. You didn't realize it, but you did. Yeah. I will say, though, if you did like this movie, and you like movies like Kids or Welcome to the Dollhouse or whatever, go back and give Harmony Corinne a shot. Uh, Gummo okay. is a very... Uh, Intriguing film. I like Gummo, actually. I'll go on record as saying I really like that film. Uh, Is it my favorite? No. Would I recommend it? No. Am I recommending it on air right now and recording myself recommending it? Yep, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's just funny, too, because it reminds me a lot of, like, the sort of 60s and 70s filmmaking, you know? Sure. And I think that a large part of that is the fact that the studio system was broken back then, and so they didn't have any money and. These cats are indie cats that are often self-financed or, you know, they're just getting cash wherever they can. So I think a large part of it is it's just it's probably a result of having to work within certain financial constraints, right? Like, oh, well, I can't show this and, you know, we can't afford to have a bunch of different lenses and we don't have time to be setting up. So, you know, we're going to use zoom lenses and then all of a sudden just by virtue of, Using a zoom lens, you know, you start in fact using it, and now all of a sudden you're doing these really long takes where you're sort of up in a building and you're zooming in on this guy as he's sort of walking through town. You know, we see the we see we see that in a lot of the sort of a uh, gritty New York uh, thrillers, quote unquote. Even though oftentimes they don't end up being super thrilling, but those 60s and 70s, you know, your Gene Hackman and Steve McQueen movies, and but it's also in the same way to your point, Ryan, they do share. For the for for people that are listening that that haven't maybe listened to previous episodes, Ryan doesn't always love '60s and '70s films, specifically the ones that where they have those like uh, they'll be thrillers, but then they like take their time with the main character, so we get to know them, and you get those long three minute takes of dudes shopping when like they're supposed to be like hunting shit down and stuff. Is that fair to say, Ryan? Yeah.
4: That that scene specifically you're talking about is from Bullet, uh, which I just felt the the scene of Steve McQueen shopping in a grocery store, um, you know, looking at apples and looking at new stuff. And then even um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they're doing the raindrops keep falling on my head. Um, I've heard other podcasts dissect these films and there's reasons why those scenes exist. And I get that. I just think it, it, it interrupts the emotional beats of the film. Uh, and maybe it's meant to do exactly that. Maybe it's meant to give you a breather. I just feel like it takes me out of the movie. Like, I'm all invested in what's going on and the plot and the development of these characters and the action beats and the emotional beats. And then all of a sudden, here we are, you know, looking at apples and grapes and looking what's on sale <laughs> in the in the local paper. And it's like, what are we doing here? And, um, you know, Burke Bacharach's song starts playing and it's like, oh, boy, uh, you know, even old James Bond films kind of did uh, some of these things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's all uh don't get on me don't at me about not liking uh you know 60s 70s auteur indie cinema Oh no at the uh, hell out of them guys at the hell out of yeah him. at the ryan
0: right. siebold on twitter <laughs> blow this man up with your yeah. hot takes
4: please at at go fuck yourself uh, <laughs> whatever that is i wonder who's got that handle anyways uh yeah i don't know i i i did not so this is what, I'll take what you are saying a step further. This is okay. kind of what happens uh, when you break away from the studio system exactly, when you're on a budget exactly, but also when you're shooting with film. How soon we forget how much the digital revolution has changed how we make indie films now yeah, and how true. much more you can do um, by just doing another take, dude. It's digital. Do another take, like whatever. <laughs> but when you when you're paying for film stock and transfer, and uh you got to take this shit down to Telecine and Photochem and all that nonsense and coloring, and you're shooting on 35 millimeter reversal like Vincent Gallo did, yeah, uh, that gets pricey. So you just let it roll. Like we're gonna do this all in one take because guess what? I've only got 100 feet of film in the mag, and that's it today. Like I got to go back and sling some more pizzas, or you know. Go break some knees with a baseball bat or sell some <laughs> cocaine to make the next scene happen. And and so, yeah, indie film gets a little tight and you just got to let stuff, you know, play out in one take or the lighting isn't right. And you're just like, fuck it. We're moving on. Yeah. You know, a, a cut print. <laughs> so <laughs> you Edward see a lot status, of these, right? Um,
0: <laughs> Just one ticket
4: Cut, print, moving forward. Yeah, you see a lot of these concessions get made. I will say, uh really quickly, that this was shot by a man named Lance Accord, uh who uh also filmed things like Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, Where the Wild Things Are. Uh so he's kind of an acclaimed little indie DP. So he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Unless of course you ask either. vincent Gallo, right?
0: You read about that? I'm sorry, what?
4: I said, you of course, say? you
0: ask Vincent Gallo. You read about that?
4: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, uh, this guy shot being John Malkovich. Uh, yeah. So he's been around. He's a he's a pretty acclaimed dude. Yeah. Uh, so he, Vincent,
0: he, Vin, for, for everybody listening, Vincent Gallo, if, if you haven't done the research or you haven't heard this before, basically brought on this guy, Dick Pope, who's a British guy. And he actually would later go on to be nominated for an Oscar in 07 or 08, somewhere around there, for The Illusionist. Uh, That, uh, uh, what's his name? Norton? Edward Norton movie. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which I never saw, by the way. But um, like I said, so Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Vincent Gallo fires him on his first movie, by the way, that he's making in his life, (laughs) and then he brings on... I'm sorry, what was what was the gentleman's name that you just said, Ryan? Lance Accord.
4: So yeah, he's Lance,
0: <laughs> Lance Accord. Sounds like the most made up name. It <laughs> sounds like he's your like John Everyman, right? Like <laughs> Yeah. Or like he's like a I don't know, some some Murdoch character, right? Like Leah the weapon, like Lance M- Mel Gibson is Lance Accord in <laughs> <laughs> Sir Lancelot. Or, you know, whatever the Give fuck. Give me right? back my son! <laughs> Lance Accord, you've got to be kidding me. That's his real name. That's amazing. I feel like I'm not even like going to talk Pope about the sh- film anymore. The rest of the episode is <laughs> devoted to discussing Lance Accord's name. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I feel like he, Dick Pope just showed up in a mustache and uh, <laughs> big mustache, <laughs> some Groucho Marx glasses, and
0: yeah, yes, Lance I'm Lance Accord, of course. <laughs> no, that who do you, who is this Bill Pope you speak of, or Dick Pope rather? <laughs> Bill Pope and Dick Pope, two yeah. different guys. Um, yeah, but yeah. uh, but yeah, so 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 after the movie, this Lance Accord guy, Vincent Gallo, shat all over him and was basically said like that guy has no visual aesthetic. Any shot that came out that was good was because of me. He's just a fucking button pusher, and it's like,
4: dude, you're a piece of work, Vincent Gallo. Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, this guy goes and shoots uh, the "It's Oh So Quiet" video um, for Bjork. Yeah, which Uh, is amazing. Was that that Michelle Gondry or Spike Jones that did that? I I believe it was Uh, Gondry, but now you have me second guessing that. So this dude's working with you know people like Spike Jones and because again being John Malkovich was fantastic. This guy knows what he's doing, and yeah. so if you're gonna put these two stories up and ask me to ch- you know pick one dude over the other, <laughs> the, the annals of history will will have me siding with a Mister Lance Accord or whoever you are. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So when the AKA movie, Dick Pope. when the movie kicks off in
0: earnest we could probably figure that's when he goes to the tap dance academy which by the way so this entire time you know after he gets off the bus he's looking for a place to pee he just really has to pee and then he he finds himself at this like uh, tap dance academy and then, and then he has this completely sort of unprovoked uh, outrage where he's yelling at this guy for supposed this kid actually rather for supposedly looking at his dick and then he's self-conscious and now he can't go to the bathroom anymore so I guess so he decides to call his mom and and he calls yeah, but not supposedly
4: i mean the kid said it's so
2: big
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is another i uh, feel just uh, such a self serving thing right he's like how what? can i make people yeah. think i have a oh, big man. dick Ah, yeah. I
4: know. I'll put this scene I'll in the movie. I'll open up my film with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then just I'll so make you... my first lines of dialogue about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then and then just in case anyone was confused, several years later, I'll make a movie that culminates with me getting an unsimulated blow job on screen so everyone yeah. knows what my dick looks like.
4: Look at my dick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so while he's there, he's talking to his mom and his and we basically get the sense that he's told his mom that he's he's married and he's had this job when really he's been in prison this whole time, right? And so he's trying to say that, you know, his wife is sick, quote unquote. She's not having it. She basically forces him to bring his wife that he really doesn't have. And so this Christina Ricci character, who's at the Tap Dance Academy, is walking on by. He borrowed a quarter from her. And then he's like, hey, can I ask you something else? She's like, sure. And then he just grabs her and violently kidnaps her. And, 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 and hauls her ass, like, out of the thing, you know, with, like, the, her mouth covered and everything. And it, it felt a little rough. And, and Ryan, I was going to ask you, too, because the thing about the Christina Ricci character, who, by the way, is named Layla in the film, that chick would have gone along with him if he had just asked, right? Like, she just goes along with pretty much everything he says the entire time. So, like, it felt entirely unnecessary to the character and thusly to the film which really just kind of ends up feeling a little gross and misogynistic after that point.
4: Oh, you think (laughs) at that point? Yeah. I don't know. Um, this was, yeah, this harkened a lot, but I got some real, real labute feelings from this, uh, opening (laughs) in this film and everything. It was just kind of hard to to sit through after having just watched your friends and neighbors and then kind of going right into this, uh, a few weeks later. So, um, But and then, you know, here's what I don't like about it. If you want to show me abuse um, on screen to get certain emotions out of me, like Boys Don't Cry or Monster, uh, some of these films that have shown female characters grow through abuse and uh, evolve through abuse and show how we, uh, abuse affects the female psyche, dude. I'm in for that that journey. It's going to be a hard one, but I'll sit through it and uh and, and I'll you know go down that emotional roller coaster with you. But if you're going to pitch me the story of uh, she wants it, she just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's yeah, such no, a I, that's I get such that. a shitty. And I hate to really hearken on this uh, or, or really beat this one down, but that's such a 90s way of thinking, man. Like, yeah. that was before, and we talked about this during Your Friends and Neighbors, and I'm going to talk about it now very briefly for those who didn't listen to that episode. Uh, but to me, I think that if there's one good thing that came out of social media, um, it, it just kind of it, it tied us all together and held us accountable. So when you say some dumb shit like that or you do some dumb shit like that, uh, or you kidnap a girl from a tap dancing studio. Uh, <laughs> someone's going to hold you accountable for it and say, what were you doing? So uh, yeah. that's it, it was I, I, I didn't I just like I hated the justification. I hated the ending where, I, you know, Christina Ricci kind of falls for him and and yeah. um, and uh, goes through that whole thing. And it's just like she wants me. She just doesn't know it yet. But by the end of the film, plus I got a big dick. You looking at my <laughs> big dick? Stop looking at my big dick. Okay, but
0: here's here's but here's the interesting thing about this film, Ryan, is that like the the character both is and isn't that, and that's I think what what I found most impressive and honestly most most conflicting about the film. Because here's the thing: it's a it's a good film, it's a well made film, it's a tremendously acted film, certainly by Christina Ricci, and I'll I'll defend Vincent Gallo's performance. I won't defend his him as a human being, but I will defend his performance in this film as being surprisingly balanced. Like for him to be able to sort of go back and forth between, you know, being an asshole and being sympathetic and being likable and being pathetic and feeling sorry for himself. And, you know, he he's constantly going back and forth between two, what can be and often are unlikable personalities, but yet at the same time, there's, a sort of unidentifiable can't put my finger on it type thing about his performance where he's able to pull it off, I believe. And I think maybe it just has to do with, you know, we get some sympathy when we see his family, even though I thought that scene was, was, was definitely a little long. Um, but yeah, but I thought that for whatever reason, he, he, he was able to keep me on his side, even though there were certain times where I was like, God, the guy's such an asshole. And again, and Christina Ricci's performance was, was pretty flawless. I mean, you know, just the way that she looks and the way that she communicates so much with her face and her posture, because she doesn't really do a ton of, you know, emoting in terms of traditional. She doesn't have big scenes, but when she she has a lot of sort of subtle looks and things like that
4: that she gives and, and it's really effective. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I loved Christina Ricci in this film. Um, I can't say. I really liked the choices that I mean the, the the characters that Angelica Houston and Ben Gazzara play as his parents uh, yeah. when they go back to their house. That was a little jarring, but again, very nineties. Um, did you ever see the movie Kids? From I never 95? saw the movie Kids. No, Mm-mm. you never saw the movie Kids. Okay, no. well, this kind of uh, then I'll stop referencing. But, uh, the, you know, <laughs> okay. There, well, there are. Sometimes these 90s indie films are less about substance and more about character. Yes. And so you get these over-the-top characters um, because your script is only so many pages. So I'm just going to have uh, this person be this person for a little while and really trump you know trump it up and uh, get it going. And uh, we'll just let it play out on on film, and uh, and then we'll slap it up there, and, and we'll get Angelica Houston being a Buffalo Bills fan for 10 minutes. By the way, uh, I know several Buffalo Bills fans, and they are exactly like this. This is not <laughs> an exaggeration at all. Uh, this is why you see them jump through the tables and light themselves on fire and all the nonsense that they do uh, as super fans. Um, you know, uh, By the end of the film, we see Vincent uh, Gallo's character uh, imagining that his mom is at his, you know, it's all a dream sequence. Imagining that uh, she's at his gravesite, listening to the Bills game uh, in her ears, and not focusing on paying respects. So, uh, and that's very much of what Bills fans would do. <laughs> Just
0: saying. <laughs> Excellent. Now, Ryan, there is one thing that I want to bring up that I wanted to ask you. So, the entire first part where he kidnaps uh, Christina Ricci's Layla character, he he's you know very aggressive and he's disrespectful, all these things, and then. He goes and he finally pees. (laughs) He finally pees and then he comes back and he's very nice and he's very calm to her. Now, I actually have a clip of that. I'm going to play this clip, which you'll still see he even still manages to threaten her even when he's being nice, um, as as you'll see here. But I'm going to ask you something real quick after we listen to this.
1: Now, don't talk, all right? Please. I need to ask you a favor. I haven't seen my parents in a long time, right? Because I just got out of jail. I was innocent. Okay, before I went away, I made up a few lies, all right? I said I was married. I also told them that I worked for the government and that I would be away for a long time. Now, what I need you to do is I need you to come to my parents' house with me, all right? And pretend to be my wife, acting, all right? Today's your big debut, your big break. This is acting, all right? You're my wife, so that means you adore me, You love me, you cherish me. Jesus Christ, you can't live without me. Now, the story would go like this. We met in high school and uh, we were sweethearts, whatever, you love me, you've been in love with me your whole life, all right? And uh, your new name would be Wendy Bolson, all right? Don't worry about the details, all right? I'll take over, just be nice. When you get there, be a decent girl, all right? Be nice. What's your name? What's your real name? Layla. Layla. No. That's no good. We'll stick with Wendy Balsam, okay? You're Wendy Balsam. So basically, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to come there and make me look good, all right? And if you make a fool out of me, I swear to God, I'll kill you right there. Boom. Right in front of Mommy and Daddy. And I'll tell you something else. If you make me look bad, I will never, ever talk to you again ever but if you do a good job well then you could be my best friend my best friend that I've ever had you hear me all right Ryan so he's being really
0: lovey-dovey there do you think that he being Vincent Gallo is playing the character such that it's, he's supposed to be an asshole because he's enraged because he has to go to the bathroom so badly. Because let me tell you, I have been in that situation. <laughs> I have absolutely been in that situation where I was stuck on the five freeway well before quarantine times, and it had been two hours, and it was a sig alert, so we weren't moving, and I couldn't get to a bathroom, and I've already been holding it another hour, and every ticking second is just so enraging that I want to punch my fist through the windshield. I 100% understand being like ragey because you've been holding it for so long. Do you think that was some sort of either successful or failed attempt at humor
4: rather than just him being an asshole? Because he's got bitter pee rage. I don't know, man. I, he's kidnapping a woman. I, think <laughs> I know. That I, I only, I, that that only goes so far,
0: but what I'm saying is in terms of the way that it's written in the performance, he, there there is a very dramatic shift there. He becomes a much nicer guy, as we heard right now, versus the way he was talking to her before. And again, as someone who knows what it's like to be ragey because you've had to go to the bathroom for a long time, I had to stop and <laughs> consider if, like, he had been in a similar situation and that was supposed to be some sort of joke uh, or built
4: into the character. How many stories in history... Uh, do you think we could attribute to things like that? Just p rage? Like, oh. <laughs> Dude, he pe- <laughs> just had p rage. People have Stalin, no, people have no rage.
0: idea that half Mary of the, re- Urethra. <laughs> people have no idea that half of the reason that the entire civil war happened had, had very little to do with racial justice matters. A lot to do with people just upset because they had to go to the bathroom.
4: Very few urinals back then. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Shortage about houses
0: absolutely so I don't know man again I'm just I'm just throwing that out there I I, I don't know uh, but I had to consider it from there we do get quite a lot of screen time spent with the family and I, I I wanted to see what you thought about these scenes Ryan so you know we're introduced to the mom we're introduced to the dad they get to know the girl. And let me just ask you, before I even go into anything specifically, like what was your high-level response to that whole sequence that took place in the house with the parents?
4: Um, a couple things. First, I want to unwind. And the they have a scene in the car before they go in, and he gives her the rundown of what he needs out of her, uh, what he expects her to do. Uh, look, here's what I've told my family. I've told them I have a wife. Uh, you need to pretend like you love me. You need to um you know act like you're the most loving wife in the world uh and then if we go in there and uh, have dinner and you you act like you're my wife then I'll let you go afterwards yeah that was the clip uh, but just uh, yeah correct so i just had this weird feeling that that's the same conversation that Trump had m- with Melania when he was running for president <laughs> <laughs> So here's the thing. <laughs> I just need you to act like you love me for four years. Just four years. Come in, take some pictures, then you can go home. <laughs> just saying. Just wanted to put that out there. The scene with the parents, um, I thought was, this is where it got super 90s to me. You had the um, the uh, four by three or the square uh, memories that kept popping up in the middle mm-hmm. of the dinner table and expanding Uh, Like a picture-in-picture situation, creative decisions to show the memories that were being discussed at the dinner table. You also had Ben Gazzara yelling at Vincent Gallo, uh, Vincent Gallo's character, and and belittling him, and all of that, uh, especially about the knife being pointed at him while they were eating. uh, Was it tripe? Uh, The (laughs) the cow intestines?
5: Jesus
4: Christ! That looked, Uh, dude. That's just terrible. So. yeah, and then we, of course, we find out uh, just before that that Christina Ricci is a, a vegetarian. Of course, so, yeah, which uh, is probably like the absolute
0: worst thing you
4: could give a vegetarian. Yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> And I think that was supposed—that was the intent—is that uh, yeah, you know, of course, she was really being showing her devotion to this situation <laughs> uh, despite all uh, obstacles in her way. Uh, but yeah, no, I liked it. Uh, I thought that when this movie excelled, it did very well. I thought the movie as a whole did not have a lot of meat on the bone. I thought that the story that it told the hero's arc or the journey that we were on with these characters, uh, one wasn't very believable 2 wasn't justifiable and chauvinistic in many ways. And it was hard to watch. And three, just, there wasn't a lot to it. Like he, you know, uh, was a loser and he went to jail for something stupid. um, And then, comes out, decides he's gonna be a tough guy, uh, and he just but he first, uh, before he's gonna be a tough guy and redeem himself for why he went to jail, um, you know, he wants to make right with his family and show them that he's not the loser that they're accusing him of being. So he does this whole kidnapping thing and uh, you know, we see it play out at the dinner table. Angelica Houston's not interested at all. She's watching the Buffalo Bills game, uh, that she has recorded, right? Isn't that the game from when he was born? I believe so, uh, hence yeah. the name yeah, hence the name of the film. Uh, the Buffalo Bills went on to win uh, a playoff game or something like that in 1966. Uh, she missed it because she was busy having him, and she <laughs> hates that. She regrets that uh, yeah. and holds that against him. So uh, she has that that game, I guess, filmed or recorded or something that she's playing back on television and watching it during the dinner, um, while Ben Gazzara uh, belittles. Uh, everyone at the table. But what I uh, <laughs> really liked was when Ben Gazzara uh, w- went on to go sing and put on the records and and uh, woo Christina Ricci with, uh, from his days of yore uh, when he was a good singer. Uh, and he lip synced this whole song and uh, that against this red background. It yeah. was kind of vignetted. The lighting was cool. Um, very 90s, very indie cinema. And I loved it. Dude, so there's something really
0: funny happening over the course of this discussion right now, which is that all of the things that you like about this movie are the things that I dislike about the movie. And seemingly the things (laughs) that I like about the movie are the things that you dislike about the movie. So I actually, this was actually my least favorite sequence of the entire film. Everything that took place at the house. I did not like the Ben Gazzara song aside where he sings the five minute sequence. Like it was, it was a fine song, but I, and and it it was photographed. I will, I will grant you that I did think the red photograph. And then of course, Christina Ricci looked lovely, you know, against the similar backdrop on, on the opposite side, but it would have made for a great picture, you know, Uh, but I didn't need five minutes of it. That was for sure. That's fair. It definitely stung. It definitely stuck out. And, and I get, even if it, even if it makes sense in terms of his character, It was the song stood out right because the rest of the movie it's either you know these Vincent Gallo indie songs or you've got you know some yes that was in there and some King Crimson that was in there more like 80s progressive rock and so having that song again it was just it, it was one of those things where the film doesn't change if you cut it out and so if you're gonna leave it in it has to have a reason which I will say worked for me the next time they did the same thing with Christina Ricci and her tap dance performance in the bowling alley. Love that, too. I thought that was Love lovely. Love that, too. So, yep, I, I understand, you know, I, I it was just something about this particular thing. And maybe it was because I didn't particularly feel like Ben Gazzara's character deserved that screen time. Like, he, yeah. he was stereotypical. Yeah, like, I didn't care for his character. He's just, you know, the checked out dad who, you know, is in his underwear and inappropriate with his son's supposed wife and just and so again it was like yeah you know I don't I don't think he needed that time but Christina Ricci I felt definitely it was like
4: it. I, I definitely yeah no I agree with everything you just said I just kind of felt like that was a moment where I felt like I was watching early Wes Anderson or some Spike Jones it shifted from that you know T- Todd Solin's uh you know, uh, Harmony Corinne feel and kind of shifted over to some early indie filmmakers that I really like and love. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of odd, quirky characters doing weird stuff. I don't know. That's kind of their MO. And uh, I dig it. I eat it up with a spoon. And, and this kind of harken back to that. But you're absolutely right. It, it dragged. It was unnecessary. It was unnecessary for the character. Um, it didn't change anything or motive. it wasn't motivated by anything. It was just some filler.
0: Yeah. Now, here's the other thing that really bothered me about this scene. And, and, and that's the way that they shot the characters around the table because they would frame. You have four characters and they would only ever frame three of them at a time. Yes. And, thank you for bringing that up, that drove me nuts too. <laughs> and not only that, but when they do, it's the same exact framing each time. And the first time mm-hmm. it happened, I was like, where's Ben Gazzara? oh, they must not have been able to afford him, and so they just, like, recorded all his things on one day, and then, you know, this was them trying to shoot around it moving forward. Sticks out a little bit, but they're an indie film. You know, I'll, I'll grant them that one. But then once everybody else starts showing up, and I realize, like, oh, they're just... They're just framing these guys in in the same exact three shot going around the table and it's incredibly disorienting and there's no reason yes, for it. it there's is. no OTS shot, there's no, you know, f- any sort of foreground of the other characters to give you any sort of anchor with regards to the the spatial, you know, what's going on with regards to the logistics of this of the scene. It, it bothered the hell out of me, man.
4: No master wide shot. all you get are these weird three shots going around the table and uh showing the table in partial and it was uh very jarring you're absolutely right and then the other thing that drove me crazy is like that took 25 minutes dude
0: there's 25 minutes. Like after minute 10, like yes, I get it. You have a dysfunctional family. I've seen Angelica Houston's character in movies before. Yeah. I've seen Ben Gazzara's character. I'm not here for either of them. Again, I found Vincent Gallo's character interesting. We all found Christina Ricci's character interesting. Let's. There's no reason to spend 25 minutes. Five of them, of which is is a dad. I don't care about fucking singing a song. I don't care about.
4: Right. I, I just think they were really trying to show that he had a rough home life, maybe, and that he was this lonely boy, like you were saying earlier. So yeah. that when we go on this re- redemption tale, by the end of the film, you were re- supposed to be rooting for this ball, And uh, and then he found love and everything's good. Um, and he was able to come out of that bad situation and turn his life around. So, it, you know, it's a tale of redemption uh, for a bad guy turning into a good guy. And this is why he was bad. So they really wanted to entrench us in this horrible family life uh, that he had to endure uh, for his entire life until this very moment. And, and so, uh, yeah, by the end, they, I think he wanted you to feel a little uncomfortable. I think he wanted you to hate his family like he did. And so, uh, okay. But I kind of feel the same way you feel about this scene about a lot of parts in this movie. I'm going to be honest. I, mm-hmm. um, There were a lot of things I thought you could cut out. There were a lot of things that didn't really mean a whole lot. We're hanging way long in in certain areas and and, uh, certain scenes just, um, you know, just had way too much breath in it. Uh, And I'm like, what am I, what are we doing here? Why are we still here? Come on, pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, and so from there when they finally do, by the way, I do like your point that you made about how maybe it was long because the filmmaker wanted us to put us in those shoes so that when we finally do leave the house, we get that like sense of relief. Right. It's like, Oh my God, finally like we he, can leave right. like, and it's like, see, I told you, I told you they're horrible. You guys get it now. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah, I kind of right. do. <laughs> so well, I get um, yeah. 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 So that, you know, not without its merit, but from there, we also get a flashback after he leaves and this flashback shows, Billy making a bet and we get a, an interesting little three-minute performance from Mr. Mickey Rourke, who's always fun to watch when he's in the right role. And uh, yep. this is unfortunately, you know, post-surgery, so, eh, you know, everything comes along with that. But um, either yeah, way— Yeah, this is when Rourke was going
4: through some bad stuff, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was coming out of some bad stuff, He was stuff, still boxing, I mean, maybe. I, I hope he was. Yeah, I— I read online that 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 Gallo paid him a hundred grand in cash in a brown paper bag to do this role. <laughs> Are you serious? That's ridiculous. So, yeah, I would've done it for That's half. what I read. Just telling you what I heard. So um <laughs> yeah. All I all I do is report what other people have reported. That's that's why you bring me on there. But uh yeah, this is kind of like I felt about this Rourke performance the same way we talked about uh Downey Jr.'s performance in Bowfinger. Like this is right peak, you know problems yeah and so uh it was hard to watch because i i like rourke i uh, do too yeah he's a great actor yeah i mean, I mean most yeah. people agree that when you know he's fun to watch on yeah. film yeah he's he's enthralling
0: he's a so. charismatic guy he's one of those guys who commands the screen but an intense dude at the same time right you know you're not gonna cast him in your like uh you know college buddies trying to get laid movie right because he's gonna show up and everyone's gonna be like oh i feel bad now
4: uh, To the great citizens of Buffalo, New York This movie that we're talking about Is my college buddies trying to get laid <laughs> <laughs> That's Learning 66. something about Buffalo
0: here uh, Oh no, now yeah, we have Now is... we have three listeners Because one of them was from Buffalo, New York Thanks, buddy
4: Hey, hey, sorry <laughs> I don't know what to say so they, three... No, they're probably nodding in agreement right now They're like, oh, that <laughs> they're like he's so right That bro is so right, out. bro
0: I don't know, is that how yeah. people in New York sound? I'm from Southern California, (laughs) in case anybody doesn't know. I'm sure you could tell from the sound of my voice. But, so yeah, so it ends up that Mickey Rourke is basically this bookie, and we understand that Billy placed a bet for $10,000 on Buffalo to win the Super Bowl. Dumbass move. And the only way that Mickey Rourke, because he obviously doesn't have the money to pay it off, he, he made the bet with funds he didn't have. And so Mickey Rourke tells him that he basically has to take the rap for one of his associates, which he does. And ends up getting sentenced to five years in prison. So that's where he is the whole time. Now, while he's there, he decides, he's actually telling his, uh, I, I believe the goon character is supposed to be like mildly retarded, right? Like that's kind of some sort of mentally challenged, right? Like he wasn't just there's supposed some, to be like Yeah, a there's something going like on. Yeah, he had some actual medical condition right to a to a degree right autistic or something like that right
4: yeah and again that's using the the uh people with mental disabilities or or uh certain challenges like that is such a 90s movie trope again every single movie that i rattled off earlier has that character or uh or multiple characters like that whether it be gummo or kids or Welcome to the Dollhouse or, you know, any of these films from the 90s, these, uh, you know, super indie films like that. They all leaned heavily on uh, focusing on people with mental disabilities. So I don't know. Just seemed like a trope to me.
0: Yeah, it was. But it was played by none other than Mr. Kevin Corrigan. I don't know if you have any sort of is he anybody that's on your radar? I love Kevin Corrigan. I love Kevin Corrigan, too. He's awesome. He's like a a poor man's Christopher Walken. (laughs)
5: <laughs>
4: a little but, bit. But i say yeah, that endearingly i love him yeah uh and we get to see him shirtless in his undies yeah so cool absolutely
0: <laughs>
4: yeah but, i have here uh my uh my quarantine look is just waiting for kevin corrigan's uh buffalo 66 look to come back like that's all <laughs> that's all i'm doing around the house everybody so if you're wondering you're wondering how i'm recording this podcast right now <laughs> yeah straight kevin corrigan <laughs> I believe we're
0: all Kevin Corrigan these days, bud. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Touche. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, Ryan. So he, so he tells his friend Goon, played by Kevin Corrigan, that he basically wants to kill the kicker. This I believe his name is Scott Wooden. And he wants to kill him because he knows that he missed the kick on purpose and, you know, starts making up all these things about how he got paid off, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Goon's like, oh, I don't know. Da, da, da. Doesn't sound so good. Uh, and then we cut back to, you know, the, the present day in the story, and they go from the parents' house to the bowling alley, and from there we get to see that uh, Billy is a strong bowler, but really I think that's just kind of Vincent Gallo showing his bowling chops, uh, apparently with his dick chops, just kind of like, yeah, here's the things I'm good at, I'm a bowler with a big <laughs> I dick, I love it I just it, love ladies. the...
4: <laughs> I love the phrase "Dick Chops." That's just forever gonna be a part of my lexicon.
0: You're welcome, Ryan, and you're welcome. Yeah.
4: listeners hey, ladies, comes get some of these Dick Chops. <laughs> oh, my buddy Ryan over there, serious Dick Chops on that guy. You you want to get with him? I am, I am changing my Twitter handle to Dick Chops <laughs> at Dick Chops <laughs>
0: at the real yep. Dick Chops.
4: Hit him up tomorrow, guys. <laughs>
0: So, uh, yeah, and let's – so that's where Layla, Christina Ricci, gets her lovely little tap dance scene. Again, I thought it was very charming. Love it. Let's go ahead and talk about the performances. So it sounds like both of us are in agreement. Christina Ricci did an awesome job. She's wonderful. She communicates. She's so expressive with her face. She did a lot with a little.
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like you said, like she didn't go over the top. She didn't. And I will add to that, that there was probably a lot of room in this film to do something like that, to go over the top, to act excessively, to overplay these roles. And she chose subtlety. Um, And she was, like you said, 17 years old. I mean, uh, stud. She's a badass. Good for her.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And. You know, the filmmakers know that, obviously, I mean, Vincent Gallo anyway, because they'll give her, he'll give her these really long, you know, uninterrupted two minutes t- takes. Like the the clip that we heard at the top of the show where he's talking about how she has to make him look good, that entire two minutes, it's just one uninterrupted take on her and her face sitting in that driver's seat listening to him. Barely even responding, right? Like, not even doing a lot of facial twitches or, you know, looking around. Like, there's very little movement, and yet you still are very drawn to her and her performance. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so, and then from there, I'd like to know, because, you know, we've talked a lot about Vincent Gallo, the person. You know, and and we're both in agreement there. So, what I want to know specifically from you, Ryan, is... What do you think of Vincent Gallo's performance as Billy in Buffalo 66? Like give us a sort of final rendering or at least an overall response.
4: I think he played himself. I think this is another example of him of an actor just playing himself. Okay, I, but did I, you think the character
0: was dynamic? Like were you were you invested in him? Did you were you did you find him interesting, you know, like like or do, or were you just repulsed by him and so you didn't give a shit?
4: Uh I think I was maybe taken out of the film a little bit because I didn't feel like he was acting. I felt like this was exactly what you said. This was a uh, performance of self-indulgence. Um, this is it, him saying, "Look what I can do," you know. Oh, just kind of strutting around and. Um,
0: Okay, but yeah, there are, there are I, certain I, I, actors that do that. So, for example, like earlier, just a moment ago, you brought up Robert Downey Jr. I think that's a perfect example. Okay. I think every single time I've ever seen Robert Downey Jr. in a movie, I've just watched Robert Downey Jr. be Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark okay. is just Robert Downey Jr. in that position, right? And he plays the same character each time. And it's a great character, very charming, yes. very personable. Anytime Robert Downey yes. Jr. shows up in a movie – I get happy because I like that character, but I always know, maybe short of Chaplin, which, you know, came early in his career, with very few exceptions, you know exactly what type of performance you're going to get from him. So does that discount every performance he's done because he's just playing Robert Downey Jr.?
4: No, but Vincent Gallo, like I said, I'm, I needed to take a shower after
0: this film. So it's not like you just uh, didn't like you just didn't like the character. Is is what I'm hearing, which is fine, and that's just what I'm trying to clarify.
4: Or maybe I just don't like Vincent Gallo as a person.
0: Okay, but what I'm saying is separate. So, so are you one of those people that? Which, which again, no judgment. It's fine. I'm just trying to. If you're going to play clarify. yourself
4: in every role that you do, a la Robert Downey Jr., then. At least be cool, like Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> like I don't know what to tell you. Like, but if, if you are gonna play yourself and be a sleaze ball, then I am gonna call you on that for what it is. You know, don't expect me to like it. Like, I can't. Those aren't uh, equatable scenarios to me. I see what you are trying to do and connect those dots, but uh, if you are gonna play yourself, but you are a bad person, then you are gonna play a bad person, and I am not gonna like you. So, I, I see what you are saying. I don't know. Uh, In this particular case, um, I didn't feel like his character had uh, enough of an arc or maybe a justifiable arc. Um, This movie was kind of just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. You know, I I didn't really feel like there was a lot of through lines. I don't
0: know. Uh, See, and I disagree. I thought I thought it knew exactly where it wanted to go. I just thought at times it just took its damn time getting there you know and, yeah. and which it did and it knows that it did and, and it's like I think he's kind of like well yeah you know that's my aesthetic like I never told you that I wasn't going to do this right but I feel like he knew where he wanted to go I didn't feel that for as much as the film may have wandered to its goal I do I do feel like it knew where it was going I wouldn't say that it felt aimless it just again kind of wandered getting there right Took a little, took a little, yeah. A few detours so here and was, there, uh, took some time.
4: Maybe it just suffered, um, uh, his, do you think maybe it suffered his ego to an extent since he was the writer, director, actor, uh, probably, I'm only going to assume he was in the editing room. Sure. Um, so, uh, here's my point. This movie was an hour and 50 minutes. Yes. I think this movie would have been really good or at least pretty solid at an hour and a half you know, hour and 30 minutes. Sure. Um, so if you would have trimmed out 20, mi- 20 minutes is a long time on camera. Yeah. No. So absolutely. There's a lot that could have been trimmed down and made this film snappier. And I think this would have been a great hour and a half film. I think it was a very dry, boring hour and 50 minute film personally.
0: But, yeah. But, but the thing is that, I don't think it wanted to be snappier. I think the film is exactly what it wanted to be. And if that necessarily doesn't necessarily appeal to you, that's fine. But okay, a- again, I think that he presented the film that he wanted to. And I think that's why his original brown bunny cut was 30 minutes too long. Right. And then sure, he ended sure. up having to cut it. But for for whatever reason, whatever <laughs> drugs he's on at the time, if you ask me, uh, you know, he likes his films to be super long and have these really extended takes and just let these three to four minute scenes play out. I think I, without even seeing it, I believe I heard the opening of the Brown bunny at the film festival was, it's like a four minute shot, a uh, wide shot way far away of just the, these cars circling a track or something like that, like in a dirt okay. field or something. Right. So, 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 so he's one of those filmmakers. And again, you can absolutely hate that style of filmmaking 100%, but first he's not the first to do it. And second, you know, I mean, again, it's like a, uh, Terrence Malik, right? Guy guy loves taking his time to where he's getting to. Doesn't necessarily yeah, mean it's bad, but you might not like it.
4: That dude's creating art on screen, man. Like that this is he also got three, he also like thirty to fifty million
0: dollars to go make the Lost World, but this
4: guy had what, one? I mean, let's take a step back. <laughs> fair, fair. I'll <laughs> give you an example. And this is more directly to your question. Okay. Uh right after this Christina Ricci tap dancing uh scenario um, we go into a scene, if I'm not mistaken, where he has to go check his locker and there's some business there. And mm-hmm. he decides he's going to go into a picture booth, yes, and yeah. take pictures with Christina Ricci. Great scene. Um, love that scene. I liked it because of Christina Ricci's performance, uh, yes. but the way he acted in that film, uh, kind of out of his mind, a little aloof. Um, I I don't think that he played that right. No, I don't like his performance in that, in that photo booth. Well, see, I think uh, it's supposed to Laith's be drawn like the- a, a modern
0: day kind of like Honeymooners thing, right? And again, you can hate that dynamic, but it's like it that's that it's it's that like New Jersey East Coast couple, right? Like they're they're either fighting or they're fucking and, and there's no in between. Right. And yeah. I think that I think that. Where the challenge in their relationship comes is that you have half of that dynamic, right? Like if Christina Ricci was, you know, the tough Jersey chick that, you know, threw F-bombs right back at him and they ended up yelling. That's one thing, but she's not. She's played as this like sort of nice, sweet, little, innocent princess girl, right? And so I think that's probably why it sounds like that's probably why it doesn't work for you is just because... You know, like that, like Vincent Gallo's character could work for you up against a different female, but against Christina Ricci's innocence, it's like
4: it, that he just seems like a skeezer. Man, no, I'm going to have to really, I'm going to go to bed tonight really thinking why I don't like Vincent Gallo. I got to really <laughs> dissect this.
0: I'm, try, I'm trying, buddy. I'm throwing so much at I just want to no, understand. No, no, you're absolutely understand. right.
4: I appreciate the challenge. I yeah. really do. But and I'm MC, trying to rack my brain to give you a dissertation on why Vincent Gallo is a scumbag, but I Which which I, which, I don't which know. again.
0: No, here's the thing. You don't need to tell me why Vincent Gallo's a scumbag. You need to tell me why Billy's a scumbag. That's what this discussion is about. Well, his
4: performance about. when he's denying her the right to have fun, I just yeah, I don't know. It just didn't do it for <laughs> Fair. me. Fair. Well, and later that in the actually film, lends itself... when he's in the sorry, go when ahead, he's in it. the bed When they get to the motel later in the film and he's in the bed and he's all vulnerable or he's in the bathtub and he's all vulnerable and all of that, which we'll get to that shortly. Uh, All of those moments, those emotional beats. uh, And look, hey, uh, I'm an asshole. I'm going to go on a limb and, and I'll admit this is his first film. And I'm ripping it to shreds <laughs> like it's his ninth film. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's in the '90s. They're shooting on film, and and he had the audacity in the cojones to to, to shovel up and do this thing. And he made a fucking feature film. So good on him. Yeah. Uh, but he he's got an it asshole, done. and he did some horrible things, and he treats women like shit. And it, I think you're just having a hard time. The movie with itself that. is chauvinistic. Yeah, it put me uh, put me out there. But movies can put you out there. Absolutely. Movies can take you to places you're uncomfortable. We talked about a few that that I would agree with. Uh, you know, performances in, uh, this was an unconventional way of doing that. Um uh, kids again, gummo, all these movies, I keep bringing it up. They all have, uh, unredeemable piece of shit characters throughout their film. Uh, kids literally ends their film on a rape of Chloe Savanier. Wow. Um, it's very, very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. dead silent. So. No music. She's passed out from a party. Dude comes out from the back room, sees her there pulls his pants down and starts hammering away. It's terrible. Uh, Movies can put you in bad places. I get it. I just didn't like the way Vincent Gallo took me by the hand and took me there. I felt kidnapped. I felt like (laughs) Christina Ricci's character. And he wanted me to have Stockholm Syndrome, and I wasn't buying into it. That's kind of where I was with this film.
0: Okay, I get it. I get it. So I do actually have a clip that I want to play for the listeners. It is of the photo booth scene, and you guys will hear what we're talking about right now. And uh, you can make a decision for yourself.
1: You ready? Mm-hmm. Come on! What is that? What? What are you doing? You just made me waste two dollars. Get off! Come on! I was making it fun. You're you're missing the point. Two dollars. You just wasted two dollars. All right, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Sit down. We're taking pictures from my parents. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. We're taking pictures like we're a couple. Like we like each other. Like we're we're husband and wife. And we span time together. We span time together as a couple. Because we're a loving couple. Spanning time. These photos are us in love spanning time no bullshit faces no funny faces just look like you like me that's all i want just look like you like me that's it can you do that you're so weird fine all right let's go yeah are you gonna do it or you're not gonna do it i'll do my best i don't want to waste more money just do it right all right we're in love We're spanning time. Look like you like me. Look like we're husband and wife. I do like you, Billy. Okay, you know what I mean. I mean like you like me like you're my wife, like you're in love, that kind of like. Like we're in love spanning time. Okay? And just do it right. All right? All right,
5: I'll do my best.
1: Don't do your best. Do it right. Okay? And don't get smart. I don't want to waste two dollars. Just do it right. All right. All right. Look like you love me. Let's span time. Okay? Let's span time together. Okay Ryan so one thing I do have to admit
0: I thought it was hilarious the the way he kept saying like let's just let's just span time okay we're we're, we're two couples we're in love <laughs> spanning time okay just just span time okay like kept yeah, bringing that up over yep. and over and it was like I found that
4: hilarious I thought it was funny I have in my notes at this point that the Buffalo dating scene is fire. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Buffalo Tinder is going. Yeah. Bu- yeah. Buffalo chicken tenders. Well, That's and so what happens, it needs to happen.
0: Yeah. Now, Ryan, I think that what ended up for me keeping keeping me from sort of going where you went with regards to my distaste for his character, uh, you know, there was always a distaste. But again, there he always kind of found a way to balance it for me. And I think one of the reasons is just, like you say, the way that he makes himself vulnerable. So there's a scene right after which, by the way, I love. (laughs) Was the only product placement in this movie Denny's?
4: Is that accurate? (laughs) <laughs> like seems about right.
0: <laughs> like Everything that's seems, going on. About right. And they're like, good day. Fine people of Denny's. We come to you with a proposal. <laughs> and they were like, well, you know what? We've got a grand slam breakfast. We've been waiting to hawk. Absolutely. We'll do your artsy <laughs> New York film. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I bet you Mickey Rourke just strong armed him into that one.
4: <laughs> Maybe he paid, yeah, I don't That know. was why he paid
0: him a hundred grand in a brown nondescript bag, <laughs> And nothing to do with the <laughs> role. <laughs> yeah, but uh, know. but yeah, but while we're there, it, we get an, uh, another vulnerable moment. So we actually get so. He actually told Layla earlier when they were going to see his parents that that her name wasn't Layla anymore because it didn't sound, you know, sophisticated, nice enough, whatever, that her name is a uh, Wendy Balsam. And so when we go to this Denny's, we are introduced to the actual B- Wendy Balsam who happens to stumble in and recognize him. Uh, Wendy is played by an Arquette, I believe, Rosanna, probably. That is the one. Hey, yep. All right. There's a few of them. And, uh, you know, she's kind of tweakery, which might just be her natural personality, but also, I don't know, maybe she'll be tweaker it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter. And we kind of learn that, you know, he he's kind of been up like, oh, yeah, I had this girl, blah, 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 and we find that's not the case at all. Uh, he actually used to kind of stalk this girl a little bit, and she was, you know, never really into him. And so he ends up going into the bathroom of the Denny's and crying right there, And and then later they go to the hotel room, and he reveals sort of, you know, the truth of the situation to... Layla, about how, you know, he basically just used to stare at her, kind of stalked her a little bit. She always just kind of made fun of him, dismissed him. But, you know, he said that time always used to pass quickly when he would, you know, stare at her and watch her. So, and he used to kind of, I guess, just walk back and forth in front of her house is the insinuation. So that's another uh, clip that I have here that I'm going to go ahead and play. So, again, listeners, you can kind of get a sense of how Billy's character is a little bit less rough around the edges than maybe that character is traditionally portrayed. Let's listen.
1: I knew her since I was in kindergarten. She was in my class. I remember... Oh, I hated school so much. I just... I didn't like to wake up. I... The first day I went to school, I just remember I was crying and screaming, and my mother, she had to drag me there. And then when I got into class, that's when I saw her. And I remember just staring at her and I started thinking things. I was very young but I was like imagining kissing her and marrying her and I just thought about her every day, all the time and then school time would go by fast and sometimes I would see her in church and I hated church too. And if I saw her in church, it was good because then time went by really fast.
5: Did she know that you liked her?
0: No. And Ryan, I'm going to tell you one other thing about this scene that I really, really appreciated. okay? And that's just sort of, look, anytime a film can sort of subvert expectations or play into a trope. Like earlier you mentioned, oh, you know, I, I didn't care for this part of the film because it played into this trope and that trope. I really like the way that it played against the traditional trope at the end because, look, we we have seen that movie before, by the way. The, the girl who gets kidnapped by a serial killer or some ne'er-do-well and ends up falling for him. This, this is not the first movie that's told that story. Let's get that out of the way. And in that story, they always end up falling in love and there's a sex scene at the end, right? Now, the funny thing is Buffalo 66 has that scene but they don't actually have sex. Like, what happens is, you know, she's trying to get him in bed the whole time. He lies down and he sort of positions himself angled away against her. Like, I thought that was very funny. And, uh, but... Eventually, he sort of goes back to her and he sort of cradles himself, you know, in sort of like a fetal position. And she just more or less, like, comforts him. And it's a sort of a very, you know, maternal sort of thing. Now, the funny thing about that, Ryan, the funny thing is, again, in the movie, that's when those two people have sex. And I believe that Gala knows this because in the bat, the score, the score during this has really sexy saxophone, like... Full-on, like, careless whisper saxophone playing <laughs> while she's cradling him. And then there's also some very sort of romantic strings. And so I believe—and and even the way that they finally sort of, you know, embrace each other, it's that same sort of feel as when, you know, the two people finally embrace to, to have sex for the first time. And so I thought that it was great to take this heavily damaged character, who, which, by the way, we haven't mentioned, he does not like to be touched, guys— And I think that's another thing, right? Like most of the time that character that's, you know, acting that way towards women, like it's because, you know, he wants uh, sexual gratification, right? On on top of the, you know, emotional sort of abuse and everything that goes along with that, the, the psychological aspect. But this guy, he never once tries to physically take advantage of Layla. And I think that was a really smart decision and I think that's what keeps somebody like me invested in the character because while he is often inappropriate with – especially at the beginning, right? But let's just – assuming for a moment that the way he treated her at the beginning was supposed to to be some sort of meta joke – from Vincent Gallo about having to pee really bad and just being in a rage, right? Okay. So so let's just assume that for a minute. The rest of the movie, he's 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 not horrible as horrible to her the way that he is early on. And so he ends up being a much more redeemable character because again, he never physically assaults her or tries to take advantage of her. And, and I understand that's a low bar if you're like, oh, well, anybody, that's your bar as long as you don't physically assault a woman. like no, you're no. Good. But like, I get well, it. With regards to that character, right? That's the way that guy's typically portrayed. So the fact that he never crosses that line with her and is just kind of shitty to her outside of that first initial kidnapping, I think is what allowed me to stay in his corner. Does that make sense?
4: I mean, Buffalo Bill put lotion in the basket. He doesn't like <laughs> lotion. <laughs> yeah, and so then when Who that was like lotion. <laughs> you're looking a little ashy, you're looking a little dry. I'm just trying to give you some moisture. You got warm fresh water. I get it, dude. I do
0: get it. And look, if this wasn't a movie, you know, if this was a relationship and, and Layla was my friend, like it's very different, right? But what I'm what I'm saying is I didn't I found
4: the character troublesome but not irredeemable. And in your in your defense, Jason, he tells her something we didn't mention is that after the dinner uh, with his parents and they leave from there on out throughout the film, he tells her on multiple occasions, you can go, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You don't have to stay here. Please get the fuck away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Actively tries to chase uh, her away
0: at times. (laughs) Basically,
4: yes. And I think that there are even moments that he's uh, intentionally rude to her to get her to leave. Because he's not willing to let those walls down. To make himself vulnerable. To open himself up emotionally. Because he's damaged goods. He knows he's a bad guy. He knows he's going to hurt her. And he also knows what track he's on. To go kill the kicker for the Buffalo (laughs) Bills. Yeah, right? So... You know, he knows it's not going to end well for him because he's also said uh, in the flashbacks in prison, we see that he's uh, uh, telling the uh, his buddy that uh, he's going to shoot himself as well, that he would never make it out. He's not going out back to prison. Uh, and so after he shoots the kicker for the Buffalo Bills, he's going to shoot himself. Mm-hmm. So he knows what path he's on and he doesn't want to take her down with him. Uh, there is a, as much as he was a, Hard character in the beginning, we start to see those walls slowly come down because of Christina Ricci's character and he fights it. And I think that that scene in the photo booth is him fighting it. I think it's a knee jerk reaction of him snapping back into it. He's starting to come around and she does all this cutesy stuff. And then he's like, no, you know, stop it. What are you doing? And that's as much a warning to himself from his subconscious as it is to her uh, saying this is not what we do. Um, because I think that there's a part of him that wants those things. He wanted the normal childhood. When we find out about Rosanna Arquette's character and how he used to stalk her, um, it does make him sympathetic in a way because all he's ever wanted is love and acceptance and he couldn't get it from his family. We've already seen that. He couldn't get it from women. We've already seen that. Uh, and he's got this big, beautiful cock that's just going to waste. (laughs) It's just going to waste cobwebs cobb web That's the biggest shame of all. It's such a shame. It's a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. So uh, <laughs> here we are. You know, I get it. I, I understand everything you're trying to tell me. I just didn't think the... And I, I, I'm i starting to think you're starting to sway me here. Uh, because <laughs> in the... In the film, I thought it was a lot of gallow. I think it really is the editing of the film. I think that uh, the movie just drags. Yeah. And there's not a lot going on in any of these scenes. And if you do that with a couple of scenes, I get it. But when so many scenes are stacked on top of each other where very little is going on and the dialogue doesn't really lead anywhere, um, you know, it just kind of, the pacing was off. Sure. So when you dissect it like we are, right now i think that the ingredients were all there i just think it was too watered down maybe mm-hmm. um you know
2: uh,
4: yeah it's just a watered down drink it still has the uh the ounce and a quarter pour of of vodka in it uh it still has your juice and mixer in it it just has way too much ice <laughs> and the ice <laughs> is melting so fast and you have to drink this so drink it. a good analogy yeah and it had, an, it had an hour and 50 minutes for the ice to melt. If, it, if you would have drank the drink in an hour and a half, you know, you would have been a lot better off. Yeah, yeah. If they, you would have just know. downed it in one shot, you
0: know, just get yeah. that shit down.
4: Right. I think that the ingredients are all there, though, uh, to your uh, to your point and in your defense. I think that uh, the performances were there, uh, you know, and I think even you're admitting in a lot of cases that there were a lot of extraneous things. And maybe that's just chalked up to history. It's also and I can't repeat this enough. It's his first. Movie, So uh, I'm going to give him a mulligan on that and give the, the guy a handicap. You know, yeah. uh, he made it. He did it yeah. on film, no less. Yeah. No, uh, with big yeah. name actors.
0: And all on his you know, and, so. and all on his back for better or worse, man. I mean, it's his yep, game
4: all absolutely. across the board. Yep. Yeah. And, so. he, and, and he wanted it that way. He said, this is my movie. I'm going to go do this. And uh this is my vision. I know what I want to make. So, you know, there's some forgiveness. Uh, but here we are in uh, good old 2021, and I've seen a lot of movies, and I've done a lot of things, and I've been around the block. And I, you know, if you're going to ask me in this context, right here on this show, if I like this movie, I'm going to say meh. Yeah, fair, <laughs> enough. fair enough. Well, let's go. Let's go ahead and
0: wrap up the film here. You know, so basically we get the final sequence where he basically gives her the uh, "I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes" speech, only instead of cigarettes, it's hot chocolate. And she's like, I know you're going to leave, just tell me. And he's like, no, I'm not leaving, I'm coming right back, right? But his face tells us and her everything we need to know. He's going to kill Mr. Scott. And uh, so, you know, he's going to go head down to the strip club. He ends up calling Goon right outside of the strip club first, basically giving away all his possessions and saying that, you know, he's the only friend he's ever had, blah, 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 blah. Goon tries to tell him not to do whatever bad thing he's got in mind, but he's going to go through it. And uh, to your point, you know, he says, I'm going to kill him and then I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going back in, into jail, that is. And so, uh, you know, hangs up the phone and then we get a long tracking shot in through the strip club. There's some girls dancing. But Ryan, the most impressive thing I thought, how the hell did he afford yes? How did he get yes (laughs) in his goddamn million dollar indie movie? I want yes in my movie. Yeah, and and King Crimson. These are these are
4: wonderful bands. Are you are you a progressive rock fan at all? I absolutely am, and I I absolutely appreciated. Yeah, and they kind of came out of nowhere. Like they weren't. I don't think these scenes maybe were where those songs were needed. I don't know. (laughs) Or were those the songs that you wanted to take out of their library? I don't know. Uh, But. There they were. Yeah. It just kinda of felt out of place. The fact that you're even talking about it, it just felt out of place. You know, I don't think it was used in the right context, maybe. I don't know. Well the reason it Did you stands, like it
0: the reason it stood out is because it's Heart of the sunrise. And that's like I mean, arguably, there's a lot of great songs on Fragile, but goddamn, it's a good one, man. My, it's right up there with <laughs> Roundabout right. and all the other ones. So like yeah, I yeah, love that. Song. So anytime yeah. I anytime I hear that da 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 like the way that the so, oh man! Sure. Ah, start percolating. It's very recognizable. You just hearing it now in my head. I want to get going. Give me a beat, Ryan. Give me a beat. No, I'm kidding. Um. So, <laughs> but the other thing I wanted to ask you about in that sequence is uh the you know quote unquote death scene right? So he walks in. He finds Scott sitting there in his table. You know he's seen some girls dancing around in slow mo and stuff like that. And he's sitting there, you know, shirtless, throwing back shots with the girls around him. And ostensibly, Billy pulls out his gun. Shoots Scott and himself in the head. Now, I'd have to imagine those death scenes stood out to you, Ryan, right?
4: Yes. I don't know how he shot that. You don't? I'm pretty sure I, I do. don't. I'm pretty sure I do fire away. Okay. Yeah, blow my mind. Okay. So no pun intended. Get it. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> by the way,
0: just in case uh, there are anybody's listening that hasn't seen the movie. So it's basically this sort of freeze frame where uh, the bullet has just left the back of both him and Scott's skull. Right. And so it's the moment where, you know, it, it just penetrates the skull and there's that sort of like splash of blood. Right. And, uh, it's it's sort of frozen, right, like a freeze frame of that moment, except then the camera f- physically rotates around, right? Like it physically yes. moves around it. If you look, yep. Ryan, I, I, I am willing to bet a significant amount of money they put acrylic prosthetics on the back of their head for the bullet hole and then had yes. them make a weird face and yes. just hold it. And they just rotated the camera around them holding they that They at pace.
4: least had to shoot that in a very, very, very high frame rate uh, and slow it down. Because there's, I mean, there's not, a, nary a twitch in their face. No, there is.
0: Actually, me. there is actually a twitch. There's a twitch. Oh, really? There's a twitch in Vincent Gallo's right at the first, before the camera goes to move. It's very subtle, but I noticed it. And that was what led me well, to believe some the bitch, whole thing.
4: Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So you I'm pretty sure that, that's how they did that. You cracked it. You cracked the case. <laughs> but then I was like, okay, that's actually, that's a, that's a pretty clever, creative thing to do. Like, you're like, okay, we don't have money. I, You know, we would do it the right way, but let's just go ahead and lean into it. Because it actually does look pretty cool. It probably looks cooler than it has any right to, to be completely honest. Because if you had told it me. It looks really cool. Like, if you, it, like, it, like it, it. let's say that's what they did. Ryan, if I pitched that to you, you'd be like, "You're a fucking idiot, Jason. That's not going to work."
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, uh, you did a great job. Yes, yeah, that so, whole strip club scene was cool. The way it was lit, the way we w- entered into the strip club, uh, the the way they showed the, the this the whole seedy vibe to it uh, with the song and the music, like you discussed, and the, you know that then we get up to uh, the kicker and. You know, he's all out of shape now and the whole bit, the whole thing, dude. I just love that whole scene very, very much. Yeah, yeah, it's really well shot. And, you know, that, but that death scene ends up being
0: all a fantasy. You know, we cut back from there and he's still standing there. And Scott actually ends up, you know, in a wordless exchange, the two never say anything to each other. But Scott just grabs a shot glass, pours him a shot, offers it to Billy Billy kind of looks at it, you know, shakes it off and then walks out and leaves. And then immediately we get that switch back to that other character because what does he do right away? He picks up the phone, the payphone. He calls Goon and he tells him, you know what? I don't give you all my stuff. I'm keeping it all because I'm not going out. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) blah, Right. He takes all of his stuff back from Goon, who at this point, by the way, has asked to be called Rocky. But, uh, you know, he's not going to abide that. And uh, he ends up. Billy, that is, going back, getting the hot chocolate for the lovely Layla. And, you know, the insinuation is obviously that they are going to remain together and he's going to accept her love. And that's Buffalo 66, y'all.
2: Hey!
4: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and then uh, also, uh, we didn't even talk about Vincent Gallo's red shoes. Those are Oh, phenomenal. yeah, dude, those were fire. <laughs> dude, I, I thought they were With pretty With the zipper slick. on the side. Oh, yeah. Dude, those, that Absolutely. was some like Italian
0: imported leather shit for sure
4: absolutely uh, yeah. yep no i love those red shoes good on them <laughs> good on them for highlighting those suckers
0: absolutely so ryan i'm gonna do you
4: the solid of letting you take the adjectives first three of them give it to I us did. wow okay yeah yeah you're welcome it, well it sounds like we're gonna have different adjectives because we both had a different take on this yeah <laughs> um so that we may not match up this week my first <laughs> adjective is r- rough Uh, It felt rough around the edges. I think that there's a good movie in here. I really do. Uh, I just think it it wasn't quite chiseled out very well, Uh, but I'll give the man a mulligan. I'm not uh, uh, going to. It sounds like there's enough reasons to not like Vincent Gallo in this world that the Buffalo 66 does not have to be another one. So we'll we'll give him a pass. (laughs) It can be the bright mark Uh, on his resume. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Uh, the next one is a uh, watered down. And and uh, I kind of used this analogy earlier with the drink thing and all of that. That's why I kind of threw to that so easily, because that was one of my adjectives. And I felt like, again, uh, it kind of relates to what I was saying about being rough around the edges. I just thought that uh, there's a lot to like about this movie. But not the movie itself, not the movie that they gave me. Uh, And if you're going to ask me to be critical about a film, I'm going to be. And I'm going to tell you my honest answer. And I just thought it was a little watered down. Uh, And it was 90s as fuck. Uh, (laughs) That's my last one. Uh, For all the reasons that we've already talked about, I don't need to bring up these directors and movies and all this bullshit again uh it just is and um trust me on that (laughs) and maybe uh, i will say though that uh it is brought to my attention that there are a lot of these films in the 90s that you have not seen uh maybe a that's why you appreciate this movie uh for what you do because uh you hadn't been inundated with some of these films uh that i hearkened back to and B, maybe we should add some of those films onto this list. And so we can kind of make you more well-rounded in 90s uh, indie cinema uh, for some of these directors and so forth. So uh, I'd be interested what you to, to hear what you think about movies like Kids, which was a very divisive film and very cutting edge at the time. And uh, yeah, or Welcome to the Dollhouse or, you know, any of these kinds of films from back then. Or Gummo. So, yeah, let me know uh, if you want to add some of those on there. But those are my three. Rough. Watered down, 90s as fuck. Jason, how about you, buddy? Well, I just had an, uh, an interesting thought now
0: while you were finishing up your thought in sort of keeping with, you know, like what was going on in 98. And I was t- mentioning earlier how, you know, this isn't the first movie to have done that whole thing where, you know, the girl falls in love with the kidnapper. I just realized all this movie is. It's just indie, the chase. The Charlie Sheen, Christy Swanson classic, <laughs> because that's exactly what Jesus. happens in the chase. He kidnaps her yeah. in the car. And by the end of it, they're having some hot sex while being chased by the cops.
4: And they have that scene that you said that this movie does. Exactly. You're
0: right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So so like so. I, So I think to a degree, this was his play on that film. And that's why some of these moments, these expected moments end up getting subverted. And I think that lent to my appreciation. So for my three adjectives, I'm going to go with offbeat for the first. It was just – it struck a very unique tone, you know, whether it was Christina Ricci's character or it was Vincent Gallo's character. I would say that, you know, the parents were probably a little derivative. But, you know, they're those characters where they shouldn't work. You know, they should be – They should be less likable than they are. Probably even Christina Ricci's character. I mean, she's at the end of the day, she's a very submissive character. She doesn't stand up for herself. She just kind of goes along with this guy and she never, you know, questions anything. She could very easily leave a number of times and she doesn't.
4: So these are not. And I will add to your point. You don't question why she's there. Yeah, (laughs) which is which is weird. You should. Right. Yeah, I think a lesser actress would not sell that as well. I think the whole film, you'd be like, why is she still there with this guy? Yeah. Uh, but Christina Ricci, you know, plays uh, without being, without showing you her origin story, you believe that she's as flawed as this guy. And so they're just two losers on the road together in a Bonnie and Clyde story. And she sells that, not him. Absolutely. That's my take on it. No, I agree with that for sure, 100%. The
0: second adjective that I have is self-indulgent. Speaking very mm-hmm. much to your... Criticisms, You know, this is a movie that was going to do what it wanted to do. Does not care what you, the audience, want. Vincent is there for Vincent. And he's going to tell the story that he wants to tell the way that he wants to tell it. And he wants to tell it using three-minute uninterrupted takes. And he wants to give you five-minute scenes of these dudes walking around, you know, and, and throwing in some jump cuts here and there. So, and whether you like the film or not... It does lend itself to a unique aesthetic, you know? I mean, this movie does feel like some other movies, but it also doesn't, you know? And so for better or worse, I think it's uh, those decisions, those, those indulgent decisions of, yes, I'm taking my time. Yes, I'm doing this. I don't care what I'm supposed to do here. This is what I'm doing because this is the way I want to make this. You know, it gives it its unique vibe, but it's definitely indulgent. And my last one is uh, you had 90s as fuck. I have indie as fuck, which really we're saying okay. the same thing. We, we, we chose different words, but when, when you say 90s and I say indie, we're both talking about all those different aesthetic elements that we've brought up over the course of this episode. So offbeat, self-indulgent, indie AF. Now, Ryan, I'm actually, I'm actually quite interested. I can see this going any number of ways. Go ahead and hit us up with your formal
4: grade rating. Uh, I'm going to give this a D plus. Okay. This one just wasn't for me. I think that there is a C+, B- movie in here, uh, but it's not the one that I watched. So, I'm giving it a D plus. How about you?
0: Well, Ryan, we are going to have the exact same discrepancy that we had on Dagon, if you remember, because you gave... Okay. Because you harshly and very undeservedly Gave Dagon a D plus, which, in my opinion, it was worth four and a quarter stars. Same thing here with Buffalo 66. I'm giving it four and wow. a quarter stars to your wow. D plus. Because, again, it's did a- you order the Did you order the limited edition <laughs> Blu-ray already? <laughs> they don't have one. I think they just have a regular standard def in there somewhere. I, I actually don't haven't say. looked, but I'm pretty sure that, that that's like a bargain bin movie. Buffalo 66 yeah. seems like one of those movies you get for four bucks in a Walmart or something. Not because it's bad just because it's one of those films, right? Like probably because like sure. it was made for a million and you know they well made million ten so long ago that they're like, sure take it for two bucks. What the hell do we care? We've already made a thousand percent profit margin <laughs> <laughs> yep. um so so yeah, man, I mean, like I said, I I defended it pretty much the whole episode and as such, I mean again, Uh, Vincent Gallo is not getting a four and a quarter out of five rating as a person by any means, but I will give his directorial debut, Buffalo 66, four and a quarter stars. So that's been Buffalo 66, guys. We are going to be back after this commercial break with a look at the killing of a Chinese bookie. Stick around.
6: From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales. Bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement and wonder, Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy and horror and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton Macaulay, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.
3: It's all right, Vince. It'll pick up. Have a big night.
4: This guy does the whole thing. So we got he choreographs it, he stages it, he does ah, the whole thing. don't
3: exaggerate. I do the best I can. <laughs> hey, I oh, owe you money, pay you. She's This guy owes us money. He's gotta pay. His name is Ling. He's a bookie. Chinese bookie. Wait a minute. <laughs> I think I understand.
0: That was the trailer for our next film, John Cassavetes' 1976 or 1978 release, depending on which one you're looking at. The killing of a Chinese bookie. Ryan, hit us up with that description,
4: man. Jason, from writer-director John Cassavetes, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this as Cosmo Vitelli, the proprietor of a sleazy, low-rent Hollywood cabaret has a real affection for the women who strip in his peep shows and the staff who keep up his dingy establishment. He also has a major gambling problem that has gotten him into some trouble before. When Cosmo loses big time at an underground casino run by mobster Mort, played by Seymour Cassell, uh, he isn't able to pay up. Mort then offers Cosmo the chance to pay back his debt by knocking off a pesky, mafia-protected bookie. Jason, what did you think about this movie? Slash movies (laughs)
0: So yeah, so Ryan, I actually really enjoyed this movie And uh, first thing I gotta do before we even get into this is uh, Apologize to you first and foremost, as well as our listeners So, to everybody listening, last episode, last full episode, that is I gave you some bad advice And I told you to make sure to watch the 132 minute version of this movie Now, as it turns out, uh, I was a little off in my math and you should have been watching what I believe is about a 104-minute version of it. Ryan, why don't
4: you explain what the hell I'm talking about? So here's the deal. Jason sets me up for disaster, and he tells me to watch this. <laughs> He's like, no, you got to watch the director's cut. We're going to get those extra 40 minutes in, son. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. Let's get Let's make the uh, make this a, a, a Cassavetes night. And so <laughs> I settle in. I load it up. I get on HBO Max. Uh, shout out to HBO Max. Been loving my HBO Max lately. Same. Uh, and, I t- and I call Jason. I say, Jason, uh, the director's cut is the shorter one. He said, no, 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 that's a copyright issue. That's on HBO. Uh, I've done the research. Watched the longer one. That's correct. They've got the title switched. Oh, okay, no problem. So I fire up the longer one cool as i'm getting into this thing i do some more research online as i'm you know typically with these things i like to get a little intro uh on the history of the film i'm looking up some notes it's kind of a uh interactive uh watching viewing experience for this podcast how i like to set myself up i've got my laptop out looking up some facts and things and i find out the shorter version is in fact the director's cut so apparently uh the studio rushed this sucker out um, and put a lot of pressure on Cassavetti's. He was not done editing yet; uh, he was still in the editing room. For whatever reason, uh, I couldn't really find a clear answer on this that I'm willing to go to bat for. Uh, but yeah, the production company distributors uh, were like, you know, you know, now's the time we're coming in. They kind of commandeered his uh, creative project and pushed it out there. Everybody hated it uh, that was involved with the film, not the least of which is Ben Gazzara and uh and cassavetes so two years later he did his snyder cut and uh went back hacked and slashed the fuck out of it and made a tighter sleeker meaner uh better film and uh so and having so i watched the bloated version i watched the 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 one that hit theaters in 76 jason went ahead uh by my recommendation because i called him and i said dude don't like you watched the better one. So he watched the other version. Uh, so we're going to come at you today with two different takes. Um, I'm going to have some things to say about the bloated version of why I didn't like it. Uh, and he's going to be talking about the director's cut uh, to everyone who took Jason's advice. Uh, number one. You fucking should have known better. You've heard this podcast before. <laughs> what are we, on episode 19? Jesus Christ. Like, you know better than the take <laughs> And number two, uh, just bear with us, and, and sorry about that, that you watched the uh, the longer one. Uh, you got the the full experience. Um, Jason, <laughs> with all that said, what did you think about your version of the movie? Man, I really liked it. And again, I I apologize for,
0: for getting that research wrong. In, in my defense, Ryan, can you think of One other example, one single other example where the director's cut is shorter than the theatrical cut.
4: No, (laughs) I'm sure I I could if I thought about
0: it. I'm sure sure if we researched it, there would be one out there, but I literally cannot think of a single director's cut that is shorter than the theatrical cut. So, like, that's where my misunderstanding came from. I do apologize for that if anybody's seen the film before listening to this episode. But yeah, and and if if you're if you haven't watched it yet and you're hearing this for the first time and you're learning about this movie for the first time. Again, shorter version, HBO Max does have both versions available with your subscription and Criterion just released that director's cut recently. So, that's on HBO Max, possibly on Criterion Channel as well. I don't know. I don't have that one yet, but um yeah, so that's what happened with there. But we hope that it makes for an interesting episode because you are going to get the perspectives of both of us. And Ryan, it, my understanding is based on uh, what you were ranting at towards me when I gave you that horrible, horrible advice uh, <laughs> is that uh, they apparently not only is it shorter in terms of just being, uh, you know, they cut certain elements out. But I think you were telling me that they just wholesale used different takes than
4: Cassavetes yeah. ended up using. Right. In theory. Yeah. Yeah. I I would have to go back and watch the other, the shorter, the director's cut at this point to know specifically. But yeah, Yeah. it's my understanding that uh, different footage is in the film. It's not just a simple more or less. It is different. Yeah. um, To better construct the story and and make it more succinct and kind of tighter and, and sleeker. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I'm hoping that doesn't really cause any issues. If it does, it's going to happen organically I don't think because so. one of us is going to say, "What did you think about this?" and you know, the other is going to be like, "I have no clue what you're talking about," which you should have more than I do because you watched the longer version, but if it goes the other way, that would be kind of interesting.
4: Right. It's my understanding that most of the extra footage or or the non-director's cut, uh the extra 40 minutes, all takes place in the Uh, cabaret or the strip club or whatever you want to call it. So uh, and that really was my biggest issue with the film. And you're going to hear me bitch about it is that (laughs) all the uh, bloated uh, stalling, you know, that that goes into that cabaret and how much time is wasted there and how it interrupts the pacing of the film. And, um, you know, they just it just keeps stalling out there. And it wasn't even that good of a cabaret here's the, the plot <laughs> twist it wasn't even it uh, really engaging wasn't. dude that the mr sophistication character <laughs> that is our host for the evening uh <laughs> is we're terrible. gonna talk about him we're gonna yeah, talk about him. he's not good absolutely. he is not good.
0: yeah
4: uh he belongs in zardoz uh with <laughs>
0: i i <laughs> i literally have an arthur frayne reference here on my notes bro <laughs> <laughs> on my notes love it absolutely love it all right take us in Okay, man. So here's the funny thing that, that, that I found pretty interesting is uh, this is one of the first movies I can think that just it doesn't open with an introduction and it doesn't even open with the traditional introduction of a scene. It starts with him entering into his club, but he's already in there. Like normally you'd at least like show the character opening the door to come in. I thought it was really interesting to just show him like, like start your movie off with him already entering and halfway walking in yeah
4: you start off in the middle of something yeah it was weird and yeah. they do like that money exchange and the brown paper bag they go in the back and they're counting money and stuff and it was like wait did i miss something what's going on I <laughs> yeah <laughs> on so
0: remote. and it was it was a pretty interesting shot you know he comes in Cool. yeah he tells the guy that like hey business will pick up don't worry it's this long tracking shot and then we follow our protagonist by the name of cosmo vitelli played by ben gazzara as you mentioned earlier And yeah, as you said, he's the guy's counting money. And then he ends up going to the background and talking to the audience from a speaker behind the stage. You know, so I I guess that's sort of something of a uh, character development, probably, aspect where, you know, he's not entirely comfortable going on stage and talking to the audience. You know, he always addresses them from behind, uh, out of out of view. And we soon learn that he has this. Yeah, I guess I, I don't. I'm not 100% sure what this show was. Like, I guess you said it's a peep show, but it was like, it's kind of like this weird semi nude variety show where. Yeah, it's a cabaret. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask
4: you is or like that a like a drag show or something like that, you know? Uh... But it's, so I guess this is kind of what I didn't 100%
0: understand about these kind of shows is like, so everybody's there for like the TNA, right? But they don't really show that much TNA and when they do it's it's more of like an artistic performance type of thing or something, except for like the maybe right. the little flash here and there. So like, do are there not strip clubs? Like are strip clubs still illegal or is this just like a, a no, soft I think core this is a thing alternative, alternative that people do? Like I, I don't really yes. know this world at all. Like so right. I was kind of confused as to like it's 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 a variety show, but they kinda show boob every now and then. Like I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, dude.
4: Yeah, let's go to our correspondent in Tampa, Florida for the latest strip club news. Uh, Take it away, Ryan. Yeah, uh, (laughs) this is something that exists. Um, You know, sometimes it is done uh, in drag with drag queens. Sometimes it is done with straight women. Sometimes it is done uh, with theatrics and more of a story or narrative. Uh, Oftentimes it includes singing or some kind of performance, Uh, but yeah, it's a variety show that is an adult uh, nature uh, in nature and um, oftentimes leans on sexualization or being risque. Um, but it, uh, oftentimes could be dinner theater or, uh, something you could bring a date to, uh, not always cool to bring a date to a strip club, but you know, (laughs) this is kind of a risque, you know, fourth date kind of thing. Like you could bring, and you know, uh, sunset strip too. we're talking back in the early seventies. Uh, The Sunset Strip was a different animal back then in Hollywood, and Hollywood in general was a different animal back then. So, um, not that it's all spit-polished and (laughs) squeaky clean now, but, um, (laughs) you know, this was... If you think of the Sunset Strip in the 80s, with hair metal bands and Guns N' Roses at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and Motley Crue doing lines of coke in the back room and all of that nonsense, um, then you think of the 70s and and the steps it took to get there. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we're at, is these seedy little clubs uh, down there. So, um, yeah, this is something that exists here in Tampa, Florida to this very day. Uh, these cabarets or, you know, um, you know that there's a, a restaurant here called Hamburger Mary's that was kind of big on that uh, until they got uh, into some trouble with uh, hepatitis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> went around the restaurant <laughs> and they had to shut that fucker down. But, uh, you know, before the hep,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing, actually, that that's they actually have one of those out here too i know because my wife went to her bachelorette party oh there. okay that was like one of the stops they made they started there it's the one that does the uh the drag queen performances right
4: yeah 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 yeah,
0: uh-huh. yeah. i
4: i hadn't heard that about the uh the hep that's unfortunate well that <laughs> it was just the the locations here uh um, oh, i see we had a bit of an outbreak uh i think it was hep but it was one of those but gotcha. uh, anyway <laughs> Anyway, yeah. so getting back to the movie here. Uh, which- yeah!
0: <laughs> so, you know, we are introduced to this uh, gentleman, Cosmo Vitelli. We're introduced to the fact that he runs this uh, peep show sort of thing. And, you know, we get to see a little bit of that without seeing too much of it. And immediately from there, uh, we follow him. You know, he he goes out. He goes to this cafe, meets this guy for a quick exchange of money. And uh, then he goes into a bar. Now Ryan, one of the things that I think so for me you know even with the the more efficient director's cut, the film does kind of meander, you know it's not the director's cut since you didn't watch it. It's not a super tight thriller. Uh, it still contains a lot of those, again, more meandering aspects, right? Where it takes its time and, you know, it's showing him go and pick up each of his girlfriends, you know, before the poker thing and things. So it still still does retain that. So that's why I was like, man, I feel bad for Ryan because I felt like the film that I watched did a really good version, giving us enough of that. And that was, you know, as we've mentioned before on this show, that was something of a hallmark of 1970s cinema, right? Kind of carried over yeah. from the 60s. But is in the 60s and 70s, there was definitely this movement towards, hey, you know, not everything needs to be a narrative driven film. We can do these sort of character development driven films. We can spend minutes. Uh, minutes on minutes even sometimes just sort of watching these characters exist in their daily lives even you know I love
2: that <laughs> yeah
0: Steve
4: McQueen in the corner
0: store let's go, do it
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yes yeah, so that was that was still prevalent in the director's cut so i i okay. i can't imagine having to sit through an additional 30 some odd minutes of that i, I can imagine that would have been really frustrating but the one thing i did want to to mention is that This seems to be something of a hallmark. And, Ryan, you've never seen another Cassavetes film either, right? This is your first one?
4: Yeah, we've talked about that. Uh, Cinematic Confessions. Yeah. Uh, Jason and I have never seen a Cassavetes film before this. Except for uh, in film school, I think we were shown scenes of faces and some of his earlier stuff like Shadows to kind of show um, indie cinema and how it started. And, you know, we dissected certain scenes, but uh, I've never sat down and watched a Cassavetes film soup to nuts. No.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Same. I know him as an actor. Like, I mean, he was, you know, also true, yeah. Rosemary's baby. So see dirty
4: dozen baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So,
0: but yeah, but, but in terms of films that he has written and directed and it's interesting because he seems to be something of like, he was seems like he was like kind of one of like the OG indie guys. Like he was kind of one oh, no, of the, people, he was the
2: OG.
4: Indie yeah. Guy back. Yeah. He's financed his own films in the fifties and sixties when that, you know, the studio system hadn't even fallen apart yet. Like before there were auteurs tours and shit, he was like, you know, kind of the predecessor to a lot of the uh, auteurs in the 70s that we know and here he is trying to play by their rules which i thought was interesting that we were in a way getting uh like a scorsese or a mike nichols or a coppola kind of film from the guy that they all i'm assuming learned from you know like he was playing their rules with his style it was interesting
0: yeah, well, and and it's, it, it's also interesting too because I think that when you talk about maybe storytelling and uh, progression through the script and the way that, you know, the actors are directed and things of that nature, I would say that there's, yeah, a lot of similarities between those people that you mentioned. But I also think that his actual filmmaking style, like his shooting style, let's call it, the, the visual language that he's using to tell his story is pretty unique. And I think that one of the times that we we get that is 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 up front in this bar scene because one sure. of the things that you notice is that you know he's got everything really close up First of all, you know, he's using long lenses and he's doing extreme close ups on people in this bar. This bar is exceptionally underlit. first and foremost. A lot of times you can't even really see what's going on. And I'm sure that was, you know, budgetary limitations. But I also think to a degree it was something of a intent that he had, you know, where he was trying to. Present films in a less polished, less mainstream fashion and kind of bring some of those photography elements. And so, you know, most people wouldn't go on an extreme close up on a super long lens in a crowded bar and then, you know, have the guy move around a lot and then just try to stay focused and keep him in frame half the time. Like, but then it also gives it this interesting sort of documentary feel a little bit. And he, he, he used. Like, one thing you'll notice is he'll do that in, in in one sequence and then also cut together with it shots that are much smoother and clearly on, like, a dolly track, you know? And so it was this really interesting mix of sort of traditional, or at least what anyways would be nowadays considered, traditional shots, visual language, polish, etc., but also cut with, like, this very intentionally indie sort of spirit. Like, like there's a – right after that, there's a scene where he – it just, like, shows a girl getting into a car. I think it's where he's going to audition the one girl. We'll get to that in a minute. But and, and, and Cassavetes, like, does a close-up sort of through a car, like, through a window, but not even necessarily through the window because he allows, like, the, the body and the frame of the car to obscure, like, half the image and then later on when he's auditioning the girl and he has her frame to where she's in the top half of the frame and you just see her legs and you don't even see her upper body. Like, So he does some really interesting things with framing and with shooting style that – sometimes don't work, right? Some of the tapes are, like, way too long and interrupted and slow down. But then other times, those same long uninterrupted takes are really interesting. And sometimes things are so underlit that I can't tell what's going on, and it's kind of frustrating. But then other times, it's so underlit, and it's really interesting because it's a stark presentation of that image. And so it was... It was an interesting experience for me. Did you get the something similar through the theatrical version, or
4: were, were those I, nine elements not there? No, they they were there and then some. Yeah, plus forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, I definitely got that. It's in so much as I went on a deep dive rabbit hole situation. Um, so because there were so many of these bloated cabaret scenes. Um, that I, you know, kind of got lost in it. It did give me or afford me time to do a little research and kind of dive into some of this stuff. And I noticed the exact same thing. And it only led me to more questions. I wish I had answers for you. Here's the deal: um, the cinematographers, plural, that they have listed for this film are not typical cinematographers. They're early producers, um, and you try to find they've got camera work and so forth. Uh, but they're not really DPs. Uh, under the camera operator, uh, they've got several listed, uh, as well as camera assistants, not the least of which is a Mr. Fred Elms, who um, is David Lynch's guy, all the way back huh. to Eraserhead, oh, and wow. Jim Jarmusch's guy. Wow. Uh, this guy has shot blue velvet, which is pretty visually stunning, uh, all the way up to the most recent uh, The Dead Don't Die by Jim Jarmish uh, a year or so ago. So, um this guy's been around. Also listed in the camera department, a Mr. Caleb Deschanel. No uh, way. He shot everything from the Natural to the Passion of the Christ? Fuckers even listed as cinematographer is the for the Lion King. Uh, Disney's the Lion King. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, this guy's been around too. Uh, and father of the great Zoe Deschanel. So, yep. yeah, I. Um, there's a lot of a uh, lot of hands in the pot. It seems like whoever was around, hey, grab that camera. You're shooting the scene. So there's some <laughs> disjointed stuff, and he might have even shot some of this himself. You know, I would not be surprised it at all. Gone. Correct. It was indie cinema, so it's just get it done. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially back then when you're burning film, and we talked about this a little bit with Buffalo as well. Uh, When you're blowing film like that, you know, that you're on the clock. It's not like digital where you could just do another take. Yeah. Um, We get so spoiled nowadays with LCD screens and monitors everywhere and wireless Teradex and all this nonsense that, uh, you know, to shoot on film back in the 70s or late 60s was a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't really know what you were getting and if something came out underexposed or you didn't have the right, you know, Mole Richardson lights to bring in to light this dingy club or it made it look too bright fuck it, moving on, you know, cut print. <laughs> so I think there was a decent amount of that, it sounds like. And and uh, there were various camera operators and various people credited as cinematographers who necessar- weren't necessarily actual DPs. So a little blurry on that. But I did I did notice that, and I think that's why.
0: Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to the movie, the next morning after... Uh, you know, this whole thing uh, where he goes to the bar. He goes and he picks up a few different women. And we soon find out that these are the women that uh, work for him at his club. And uh, one of them, a uh, very beautiful Af- African-American woman, is uh, his specifically his girlfriend. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting because... He, <laughs> so, he, again, even in the director's cut, in the trimmed-down version, Cassavetes makes a point to before... And after the poker scene, which is going to come right after this, show us Ben Gazzara at Cosmo going to pick up each of the women specifically and giving us Mm -hmm. a little bit of... Uh, flavors of their relationships and then afterwards he shows us dropping him dropping each of them off at their house and it's this very sort of you know nowadays again that would be considered sort of like wasteful or inconsiderate of the audience's time right like just okay i'm gonna go drop you girls off and then we cut to the next morning and he's at the cafe and we know that he dropped the girls off like we don't need to spend five full minutes seeing that right But this film does that. It does those. And I was curious because, again, we've already talked about how that's sort of a a hallmark of 60s and 70s films. Ryan, do you have any opinion as to why those films employed that? And why? why (laughs) I'll cut you
4: off right there. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. I wish I knew.
0: Yeah. So here's the thing that to me that's interesting is I think that. You know, we, we we talk about film as sort of a reflection of society, right? Like, like it holds a, a mirror up to society relative to where it is. And I think it's funny because I think when you go and you watch these like films from the 60s and 70s, it's really indicative of like how different society was and the pace of society, right? Like you watch these movies and these TV shows and they will just show you a three-minute scene of a dude walking from a car into a building – going up the stairs, picking up the phone, and I think that for as much as it may have been an artistic decision where they want to kind of show this, it was also just a reflection of, like, the fact that, like, Life was just a lot slower back then, and you didn't have a million options. And, you know, it was like, hey, let's just go ahead and sit in this for a little while. Like, what are you going to do? You you got some place to be? You can't sit here another hour? This is part of a double feature, (laughs) right? I mean, think about that. The fact that every movie used to be a double feature with several trailers in between, and, you know, now it's like we can't even find the time for one movie, you know? And and I so I wonder how much these sort of aesthetic decisions, you know, sort of reflect the times that they're made.
4: Yeah. I I remember having this discussion um, in film school so many years ago uh, where, and this is common, this is nothing. I'm not giving you any insider information on any, anything that you, everyone listening to this podcast doesn't already know, but uh, the walk and talk sequence from the car, up to uh, the apartment in Pulp Fiction between uh, John Travolta Uh and Samuel L. Jackson. And the whole thing is, you could have your actors doing anything you want, the most mundane thing, just walking. uh, But as long as you give them something interesting to do, that was always the qualifier. It's like, that conversation between those two men about foot massages and whether or not they were qualified as being sexually uh, stimulating or whatever the motivations were and all of that, as they go up to massacre an an entire apartment full of younger men, um, you know, the payoff is huge. You get that great uh, speech monologue by um, Samuel L. Jackson. But in the meantime, there's just this huge walk and talk. And even before that, when they're driving, discussing the differences of fast food between France and in America and all of that. So um, just, you know, uh, I think that that's the first example I could think of where, you know, things kind of changed as far as giving your character something interesting to do, because before that in indie cinema, uh, you end up with exactly what you're talking about. A lot of not interesting stuff is happening in these moments. It's like, or just cut the moments and get right to the point, which is where I think we've gotten nowadays, um, you know, in indie cinema with, um, people like Edgar Wright, I think of right off the bat where, you know, he, he moves, that guy's a mover and shaker and he's not sticking around for anybody, uh, you know, to, to give you any bloated bullshit. Uh, he knows what your, um, shitty, uh, attention spans like <laughs> and He's going to give you the, what you need. So yeah, I just think that you're absolutely right. And then, uh, intercut with all that are the blockbusters, obviously, which, are a different thing altogether. That's not what we're talking. We're not talking about Indiana Jones. Uh, We're not talking about Star Wars. They have no problems uh, doing a wipe cut, uh, you know, George Lucas wipe uh, cut and uh, getting you right to Germany or right to the desert or wherever you need to be. Yeah. Uh, But these are indie films. You know, sometimes it's filler. And I know that you've talked about that before, Jason, on the podcast. But I think in this particular case, you're talking about... Uh, an hour and 40 minute director's cut, two hour and 15 minute uh, full boat uh, producer's cut or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there there was no filler needed. Uh, I don't know why we we kept that in, but whatever, unless you were trying to show the difference in tone, maybe on the way to and the way from to kind of get the, di- you know, kind of like um, throw the the character into upheaval, like on the way there, it's all champagne and you know, champagne wishes and caviar dreams for Ben Gazzara on the way back. That man is defeated and he's fucked. So, uh, yeah. you know, that's the only thing I could think of.
0: Very cool. Yeah, no, totally, man. So and the scene that we're talking about that he goes to is he, he goes and he picks up all these girls. And then he goes to this what's clearly some sort of illegal mob driven poker game. And uh, at first, he's kind of offended because he goes to place a bet and he wants to get some credit from the house. And they're like, oh, you know, we can't we can't give you eight hundred dollars for that bet. And he's like, what? Let me talk to the manager. I have unlimited credit. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Cut to the next scene where he is upstairs. He is waiting for uh, the mob boss to uh, have a specific conversation. We're not entirely sure what happened yet. And it's quickly revealed that uh, he just lost twenty three thousand dollars in this poker game, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which that is that's totally quickly. Yeah. And that's $23,000, 1976 money. So that's, right. uh, that is a, a, a large sum needless to say. And it's like so, a couple houses probably, <laughs>
4: right? Yeah. Serious?
0: No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, they, you know, he also does something interesting where Cassavetes that is, he shows us right before that, that there's a, uh, urologist that just lost I think $5,000 to him and he's like, hey dude, you know I, I can totally pay this off, give me 30 days and the mob boss is like, yeah, no, nah, we need to get paid right now he's like, no, 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 come on, give me 30 days they're like, yeah, no, nah, pay us now or, uh, you know, gonna 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 something unpleasant's gonna happen, right whatever sort of veiled threat they make so I think that's kind of one of those things where we're no like oh shit, okay, you know, this, the, this guy's not fucking around, he's, you know, not really gonna work with
4: Cosmo, I keep wanting to call him Ben. <laughs> uh, Cosmo. Um, and- Whenever I say Cosmo, I want to say Kramer. right. I know, right? I it's so it. hard. <laughs> or Which I this movie order- would have been really good with Cosmo Kramer in that role, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, uh, but, you know, they're a little bit
0: more willing to work with Cosmo than they were with this urologist fellow. And they have him sign some papers saying that he's going to pay back the 23000 And, you know, they kind of let him go. And I actually do have a clip of that, Ryan, so let's go ahead and play that real quick for the listeners.
3: Mr. Vitale, do you plan to pay your debt by check? Well, I don't usually carry that kind of money in my bank. All the money I make, I put back into the business. And it's paying off handsomely. Now look, I intend to pay, I'm not one of those guys that consider a gambling debt just a piece of paper. I'm sure. I'm sorry for the formality, but uh, I'm going to have to ask you to sign a couple of forms. $23,000 is a lot of money.
0: And as we mentioned before the clip, from there he goes and he drops each of the women back off at their respective homes. And he just kind of lets us sit in that space. I guess maybe, which I didn't necessarily get this, but sort of looking at it through a logical or intellectual lens like perhaps it was one of those things where he's trying to show us that like you know after a long night come down hangover sort of thing right you know where the sun's up and you've been partying all night and you're still up and you got to go drop everyone off and you're just haggard and run through and like right so I think I think that was the intent of that scene it didn't really come across that desperate if I'm being honest but you know, you can make that argument.
4: So here's the, um, here's my take on that. Uh, I actually have notes on this. I believe that the times, the extra time spent in the cabaret, um, and the elongated intro to this film did the middle of this film and the ending of this film, a great disservice. Okay. Uh, and I, I, was, I, wanted to ask you about this since you saw the tighter version, uh, the director's cut, Um, I feel like there are moments that we're talking about right now where he's coming back and we see him. You're right. The sun's up. The party's over. He's got to face the music. And now we get injected into this uh, neo-noir film, you know, crime drama. And so uh, and now he's got his mission. He's got his marching orders of what he needs to do to go kill this Chinese bookie to make ends meet or make amends for this debt. Uh, But rather than appreciate some of these moments that were probably designed to build tension i felt that it was done as a you know I, I was i wasn't as into it because i had spent so much time getting into the film waiting for the film to start and in between these moments as well these bloated scenes in the cabaret etc that uh some of these moments that were probably designed to build tension or to Uh, change tone in the film and transition uh, into other parts of the film between acts and so forth. I I wasn't picking up on that. Uh, Did you get any of that at all? Uh, Do you feel like the the bloat of the film did the uh, intentional stalling uh, a disservice? Does that make sense? Am I coming across? Yeah, yeah, no, it did. And I think it was very different for you because the way that the theatrical
0: cut plays is it's kind of like, it's got like a, shall we say, slower bookends, right? So like the first... 15 20 minutes is pretty slow with no real sort of plot happening. Maybe even the first half hour, but I do think it at least finds its footing after about 10 minutes or so. And then the back half, the third act was also really long. That's kind of, huh? I actually just considered this, realized this right now. I think, I think what's most interesting about this film is that the, 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 the story regarding the actual killing of the Chinese bookie is really the second act. Like, it's not really it's not really a traditional set up the fact that he has to go kill this Chinese bookie at the end of the first act, spend the second act going through all the steps to get to the Chinese bookie, and then third act, he either succeeds or fails at the thing. Like, that's the framework of this story traditionally. But the interesting right. thing is that like you say, the, the entire first act is just him going and living his life and picking up these girls and going to this poker game and doing the show and dropping them off and blah, blah, blah. And then the second act is he gets approached by the mob and pressured into doing this thing. And then it kind of, he he does the thing at the end of the second act. And then the third act is once again, him going back to his team and they have the sort of pep talk up in the, or rather backstage. And, you know, that's a really nice extended monologue. We'll talk about that later. And then from there, he also is going to the audience and talking to them on stage. So it's really, it, it, I just realized that, that that's sort of like, it's a really interesting and, and it may or may not work for people, but I think that's kind of what you're picking up on too.
4: Yeah. Well, even just like the moments where he gets in the car with all the mafia guys and they're, Telling him what he's gonna need to do to kill this Chinese bookie and and to make right with this debt, um, he's in the car and then another guy gets in the car and kind of sandwiches him in the middle and then other guys get in and out and exchange words with him and there's lot. This is just one out of many examples I could think of right off the top of my head, uh, but there's all these all this extra time. You know, he's really letting you sit in it as yeah. Gazara is and let the tension build. Uh, letting the tension build. But because I've already been sitting in it in the cabaret, I've been sitting in it at his girlfriend's house uh, with her family as she's getting ready. I've been sitting in it in the car ride over to the, d- I, I, I feel like there's so many stalled out moments that by the time I get to those moments, like he's in the car with the mafia uh, and, and you know, that should be building tension. But instead I'm just like, we're 50 minutes into this fucker, you know, an hour into this movie. And it's like, Christ, can we get on with it? Like, this is. <laughs> do you see, I think it does it a disservice on the pacing of the film so that I was not able to appreciate some of these quiet moments or stalled out moments or even moments following Gazara as he's going up and down the Sunset Strip. You know, kind of what am I going to do? You know, all these things stuck in his own head. Those are things I would have liked to have appreciated that I wasn't able to because I was so done with it uh, by that point. Just it felt slow, so slow and, and weighted down. Yeah, definitely. Now, there is one
0: of those sequences that I really like, Ryan. It's our next sequence, and I touched on it earlier. It's the one where he goes to the cafe, gets his coffee, and then there's a waitress there. and She knows who he is, that he runs this club. She wants to audition for him. So she asks if she can audition. They go back to the club. And like I said, there's this really interesting framing that does where we just see her legs at the top half of the frame. And we see Ben Gazzara watching her on stage, the back of his head in the bottom half of the frame. And then she does this whole little performance camera camera kind of pans back and forth, but always keeps her top half of her torso cut off. And then when she finishes doing the onstage aspect of the performance, she walks down the stairs and then she walks into frame and becomes like fully visible. We see the top half as well. And then she's going to kind of do this, you know, sexy close up strip tease for Ben in <laughs> Ken Ben for Cosmo in his chair. And that's when the girlfriend walks in and she, you know, freaks out on him and, and basically just flips out and he's got, you know, one of those like, come on, what are you doing here? I do have a clip of that one that I want to play here real quick, so let's listen to that.
1: Oh, oh stop, oh,
3: stop.
0: Stop. Call
3: it
0: now Ryan this is the other funny thing is that the next sequence after that great sequence is really the first time in the director's cut That we actually get to really see and experience this show. Up until now, we've seen parts of the performances and we've heard the performances in the background. But we haven't really seen several minutes of this performance. So after that is really the first time that we get to see Mr. Sophistication and the I believe they do like the Paris sequence uh, is what they do. And so this is where that comes into play. And that's really the first time that we get to sit in this. So it sounds like based on what you're saying, that 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 we've had several moments in the theatrical version of that already. Is that true? Yes, correct.
4: Yeah. So that would be
0: that would be a drag, man. I could totally understand how that would, uh, like I said, literally drag down the the enjoyment of. And,
4: and it's just, it's excessive at that point. You know, like I said, with the tighter. This was a crime story mixed in with dinner theater. Like I was watching a cabaret that also happened to have, it felt like one of those murder mystery crime trains that you go on, you know, that are like, who did it? You know, is it the conductor, you know, the ticket taker and you know, they're all in costume (laughs) and (laughs) coming out one by one, you know, you can participate and help us solve the crime. And uh, everyone's having steak and, and lobster. Yeah. And, uh, yeah it felt like one of those dinner theater situations this whole movie did uh where I felt like there is a good or at least a decent noir film in here somewhere um but I you know had to sit through you know a lot of cabaret to get there and it wasn't here's the other thing too it and I can't stress this enough. it wasn't good. Cabaret. It wasn't good. It wasn't entertaining. This Mister Sophistication fella wasn't, you know, entertaining or or charismatic. Um, yeah. Well, that's who I want to talk about right now is this Mister yeah, Sophistication guy because, like, yeah, I
0: he I don't understand why he's like the main draw. And 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 again, Ryan, you seem to have some sort of understanding of this, but like, is, is that kind of is that what an MC is? This dude looked and acted like. Danny DeVito's penguin in Batman Returns, right. with a drawn-on pencil mustache and beard, a la Mr. Arthur Fane from Zardoz. So it was a very unique, we'll say, persona that he had. And uh, yeah, he, but he was he was featured a lot. I mean, did, a lot. did did you get a lot of him in the theatrical? Oh yeah,
4: <laughs> <laughs> probably more than you, buddy. Yeah, Um, you know, I, I think of the. The, the most prominent example that comes right off the top of my head uh, to what a character like this maybe could have brought, and, and this is completely a different way, I mean, 100% different film, but the, the most ex, uh, obvious example of a show like this uh, would be John Leguizamo in Moulin Rouge. Um, where, you know, whimsical and fun and high energy and wearing lots of outfits and now presenting and blah, 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 you know, and these big grandiose introductions. This guy was just like, sweaty and gross and wiping his brow might as well been smoking a cigarette and uh you know it's just kind of a and i know it's a seedy dive bar and not the moulin rouge you know directed (laughs) by Luhrmann. you know this is uh the sunset strip in 76 so i get it but geez you know then put him on less if he's not going to be as charismatic and fun and charming and witty uh, and it's just like,
2: uh, uh, and now, uh, <laughs> Oh Jesus.
4: Uh, Oh, to my left is, uh, Oh, we're, where are we? Sweet Paris. And you know, here's <laughs> dancing Marie and sweet Paris. Enjoy your titties. And it's like, geez, man. Like, I don't know, bro. You lost me. <laughs> <laughs> I get that those things rhyme, but you lost me on this one. I'm, I'm out.
0: <laughs> totally dude. Totally. Yeah, it was a it was definitely a, a, a weird character there and again you know I just uh, like I said I don't really know if this is standard or not it doesn't sound like it was though but um it's so as you you know and, and the way that the theatrical or rather the director's cut works is that you know as we're watching this show, that's when the gangsters arrive. So it really works in the context of this because, you know, he's trying to get us to settle down, settle into this show. And then the gangsters pull up and they tell the doorman like, hey, go get your boss, go get your boss. So. Right. And then that's where they rip him out. They take him down to a local restaurant and basically tell him like, hey, you know, that 23 grand you're in for. We'll go ahead and wipe that completely clean if you go ahead and take this hit for us. And, you know, he's never killed someone. This is far beyond. He just wants to pay off his debt. They're pressuring them. They're pressuring them. And Ryan, I wanted to double check on this with you because I'm not sure if I had this correct or not. But I believe what happens is that they they set him up to go ahead and take this hit. And Cosmo says, you know what? No, I don't want to do it. But I do want to reduce my debt, not wipe it off completely. Right. So, uh, you know, what can we do about that? Yeah. And then they're basically like, well you can go ahead and you can use your girls to draw this guy out and set him up in position for us to do the hit and we'll go ahead and knock 10 grand off of your debt. is Is that what you got from that scene?
4: Uh, I didn't catch that
0: okay no. because I'm pretty sure that that happens and then the next scene is he goes out with the girls and he's supposed to he's supposed to be carrying this out and then instead he ducks into the movies. And then they go like spend way too much time in the movies.
4: Oh yeah. is that what happened. Yeah. Okay. And then they get out. So he gets and cold feet. That's correct. why he goes to the movies. He's correct. like kinda like nervous and, and uh so he goes to the movies and then too much time passes. And yeah, he, they, he basically just waits over, it out because that guy's gone. Correct. Yeah. So he waits got the situation it. out, then comes out. And then
0: because they work at night, by the time they get out, it's like, ah, oh, shit, no more time to do that. We got a show to do. Quick, let's go back right. home. Yep, yep. So, uh-huh. yeah, so that was that whole thing. And then that's what causes them to show up again the next day and basically say, all right, dude, you fucked up. Now you have to do this. Now you have to go. Uh, kill this bookie, here's the gun, yep. here's the car, here's the everything, because he bailed on doing that
4: part that he said he was going to do. Makes total sense.
0: Yeah, so, and the interesting thing is they basically have a, a hot-wired car. So, you know, as you mentioned, they get him inside, and they tell him, like, hey, you know what, this is what's going on, blah, 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 blah. And they give him the gun, they get put him in the car, and they say, by the way, uh, the car is stolen and hot-wired, make sure that it doesn't stall. Yeah, there's no key. Yeah, exactly. There's no key. And so he's like, you know, he tries to get out of it, but obviously he can't. You know, we've seen this situation, you know, a thousand times in mob movies before. Uh, They're obviously going to kill him if he doesn't do it. So he accepts and he gets on the road and pretty much immediately blows a tire on the freeway. And it sort of stops and it's still running because it's hotwired. Right. And so he gets out and he runs off and he's trying to get it going again. He can't move. And so eventually he just bails and he runs and he finds a payphone and he calls himself a cab. And uh, then he checks back in with the cabaret that he runs. And I thought that was kind of nice, you know, and and we've seen this character before where it's like they're, you know, their life's work, you know. And so even if they're doing something, you know, being chased by gangsters uh, like like Cosmo is, you know, they still got to call in on the business and check and see how the performance is going. And what why are they doing that number? There's only two people. You can't do that that number with two people. And da, da, da. so I, I thought that was
4: a Yeah, he done. seems like uh, I thought that was a really neat moment uh, for yeah. me because when you are doing something you know is wrong or that you're nervous about, you're about to break a rule of some kind or do something uh, that you shouldn't be doing breaking into a, uh, school to get the answers to tomorrow's test or something epic, you know, like, uh, that, uh, that you should not be doing robbing somebody or something. Uh, you know, it seemed like he was trying kind of getting cold feet and like just trying to distract himself almost and yeah. do what felt like go back to his comfort zone. Like, did like it his feels normal type Correct. So it's like, so what's going on over there? Uh, how are things uh, like? No, things are fine. So what song's playing? You know, and he kept asking about all these details that uh, kind of showed me again. the uh, That was one of the more interesting character moments for me where he was just trying to tap into something normal, some kind of comfort zone uh, in the midst of uh, him going to kill somebody, which is <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy yeah. <laughs> for someone who's never done that before. And, you know, Ryan, the other thing that we haven't mentioned is.
0: This movie, I think that I think that Cassavetes instructed Ben Gazzara as Cosmo to make sure that he was smoking something every single moment that he is on film cuz that guy is constantly <laughs>
4: smoking cigars or cigarettes in literally every scene. Like I didn't notice. Oh, I didn't notice. I feel like that's such a uh, actor's choice back then, like what do I do with my hands, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah. So, well, and I think it's just one of those things too, kind of uh Harkening back to what I was mentioning just a little bit ago about just society being different, I've actually you know sure. talked to to older people uh, about that sometimes, and and yeah, it's like you know one of the things they'll mention is like, dude, like you have no idea how ubiquitous smoking was, dude. Everybody yeah. smoked everywhere never thought twice about it wasn't considered a bad thing in the airplane in the cars in the office while you're working before you and it was just like so when you go back and you watch these things it's funny because you know obviously knowing what we know and the way that society is towards uh smoking and specifically with cigarettes these days it's just very funny to go back and watch these things and just just how constantly everybody smokes dude
4: I think too, uh, you know, it lends itself well to that noir feel, you know, you think of Bogart, you think, of, yeah. uh, you know, Cary Grant or, you know, any of these, uh, early, uh, characters or icons, you know, it's just having a cigarette or going, having a smoke, you know, that's so to me personally, when I think of like black and white noir films, uh, like Maltese Falcon or something like that, you always think of the man in the shadows with the cigarette, you know, and, and, uh, or in the CD bar, you know, to having yeah. a smoke, um, it just kind of gives that that noir vibe, that detective vibe, you know. I don't know. Definitely. That's just me. No, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I, I kind of relate that to Los Angeles too, just kind of grimy and seedy. You're like early New York, you know. You get some of those New York uh, crime dramas or thrillers from back then. Uh, you know, cigarettes kind of just go hand in hand. That smoky bar, you know, that smoky dive bar or whatever. Definitely. Just kind of sets a scene a little bit. Yeah, kind of. Also, kind of like the uh, you know the film stock. Uh, that a lot of these guys
0: use, you know, just that really grainy, heavy, heavy, grainy film stock that they all use to tell these films, which just, again, blends in perfectly with that, you know, cigarette and stark lighting aesthetic that we're talking about.
4: Yeah. And to your point, um, you know, when you have, when you're smoking a lot like that, or you're motivating that, uh, that look, um, you could use, I, I wonder if they had like hazers or smoke machines like we have now, uh, I, I'm assuming they did, maybe. but, uh, you know, we use, uh, on film sets, we use hazers all the time to allow light to add a glow. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, vapor yeah, get that and smoky the smoky backlit type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. It gives a, uh, a real distinct, uh, vibe, you know, to your shot instead of a light being so stark, you're allowed to dim that light, let it reflect throughout the smoke, or the haze, uh, vapor and, uh, and it gives you a nice glow or, or you could see light rays coming through windows, you know, sunlight, uh, you know, things like that, that it makes a a room look dusty or kind of lived in, uh, gives it a vibe. And, um, you know, I almost wonder if they didn't use cigarettes for some of that as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely,
0: man. So, and then from there, uh, so he's, he's been, he's in it now again, you know, he, he, he said he's going to do this. And one of the things that we didn't mention earlier, but they tell him that, when he, Before he goes to the bookie's house, he has to go and order 12 hamburgers because he's going to use these hamburgers to give to the dogs as a distraction because the compound has dogs. So, you know, we – and again, you know, giving us some of that character development. You know, we see Cosmo go to this bar and, you know, there's the perky waitress that's trying to be, you know, pleasant with them and, and strike up a conversation about – you know separately wrapping the hamburgers and he's like no nah, i want them in the whole bag and you know they have a little sort of back and forth and he's just you know heavy huffing those cigarettes dude he's like don't you know don't <laughs> don't contradict me woman just do it right you know so he just 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 giving us a moment to be in his headspace to your point from a moment ago and uh from there, he does, in fact, get the hamburgers. Which, by the way, after that whole discussion about how 12 hamburgers would never fit in a brown paper bag, like, that bag wasn't even a third full, and they straight rolled it down, and I was like, guys, come on, you just pay a little closer <laughs> attention. You you just, this entire three-minute conversation was about how you can't fit 12 hamburgers in one bag, and the bag's a third full. <laughs> I'm not that guy, usually, but well, that was she, egregious. Well, I think
4: she was uh, she was also alluding to, to the greasewood... Bust out the bottom, or, or that the bag wouldn't substantiate uh, the burgers. So it may have been a grease to weight ratio. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I'm giving so. this film more credit, maybe. Than says, but. <laughs> yeah, it's just a minor
0: inconsistency there. But uh, yeah, so he gets the food and he goes and he comes to the compound and he's able to. Uh, pretty pretty easily you know sneak in uh, it's kind of interesting that not a lot of drama was extracted from right, him yeah. breaking they, in right yeah they
4: were saying trip wires and alarm systems and all and he just kind of strolls on past the. yeah it's this really where the guards are brightly lit two, driveway the guards are like those are the shittiest guards of all time he just <laughs> not only walks in but walks out <laughs> and he walks
0: straight up like the main road like there's this brightly lit entryway going right to right a, an, an all window sort of overwatch tower but it's not a tower it's really just a house but it's supposed to be like where the guards are watching the entryway to see who could, and yeah and they're like okay you know you gotta get around the tripwire and this and that and yeah he gets there and he's just yeah, like follow these, cool. follow these instructions Walk
4: specifically up. to the T or else it's all a shot yeah. and, uh, and then he just kind of strolls like, right in yeah no big deal
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is weird because they don't do the same thing with the, the climactic scene in the parking garage. I actually thought that scene was really well executed. So, uh, we'll t- which we'll, again, we'll talk about it in a minute. But either way, yeah. Not a lot of drama or suspense extracted from him breaking in. And he pretty easily and quickly finds the bookie. And he's, you know, this very old, meek sort of Chinese dude who is in an oversized bath. And he's sort of splashing and playing with a young girl. And uh, I'm sure she's been hired, you know, by him to spend time with him. And, uh, you know, he again, it's not really a dramatic. He's he's not a strong guy. He doesn't have weapons. He's you know, the guards uh, haven't been alerted to his presence. So Cosmo pretty much finds him, you know, catches him stark naked, you know, in the middle of uh, getting out of the bath. And I think the bookie says something about apologizing for knowing he's done some bad shit. And Cosmo just shoots him. Boom, boom, boom. There you go. And he doesn't realize that there's another girl that's right there, the the young girl that the bookie was spending time with in the bath. And she runs away, and then the guards come in, and he shoots the two guards very easily. And then, yeah, just, just sort of runs off and sets this little distraction that apparently gets everybody away from him, and he's able to run out. But not before he's actually shot at, and he does take a bullet to the gut right at the last minute before he's able to escape by... Apparently the one effective guard that they had, or at least halfway reasonably effective guard that they had,
4: or maybe it was just a good yeah. shot either way. No, I mean, I, he's a bookie, so I don't know how far up the, uh, the Chano command, uh, he is precisely, you know, as far as what quality guards he has or can afford. Um, so I gave him a little bit of a, I was thinking maybe the bookie isn't that big of a fish and maybe his guards are just kind of henchmen. Well, no, dude,
0: because, like, the the mob boss, the gangster, talks about how this dude, like, ran the entire underworld or whatever. Like, it was such a big deal. And they're talking about when they're, you know, when they're taking him to the parking garage to, uh, you know, take him out. And they talk about how they've been trying to get this guy for years and they have never been able to get to him. And, you know, how were you able to do this, uh, you know, so quickly and easily and blah, blah, blah. and. Um, so, no, like this guy's like a, a serious, serious dude that's like got a ton of trafficking going on. And and again, I think that's why it's so weird that this kind of random club owner who's not right. seasoned or anything like, you know, is going to be able to do this shit so easily over these, you know, trained professional baddies elsewhere. And that 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 kind of seemed weird to me. I
4: mean, even Darth Vader had Stormtroopers, buddy, who they couldn't <laughs> hit shit.
0: <laughs>
5: and then, I don't know what to
4: tell you. Yeah, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is,
0: so the way it turns out is, you know, they end up doing the old double cross on Mr. Cosmo, right? They basically tell him, hey, you know what? Uh, off this bookie, and we'll wipe your debt clean, and uh, we'll never see you again. And so he does, you know, they, they get the news in the diner, the gangsters do, And, uh, you know, they're very relieved and very happy and blah, blah, blah. And uh, but either way, they still go back to the club and they pick up old boy Cosmo and they're like, yeah, hey, Cosmo, uh, sorry about this. But, uh, you know, we're going to kill you anyways. Uh, It turns out the whole thing was uh, was was a setup. Um, Do you know exactly was he targeted Cosmo. Or was he just the one person that they happened to find and it just kind of worked out as such? Like, was there more to the story? Like, did he have some sort of connection to anyone or did they just off him? Because I think they talk for a minute about when they're when they're driving him to the parking garage to go kill him once and for all that. Basically, it just has to do with like the heat that's on him. Right. Like because this guy is so big. And everybody's going to come looking for you, and we basically know that it's only a matter of time before you sing, right? Like, or somebody figures out that we hired you to go kill this guy. So, you know, no, n- nothing personal, but we got to kill you now because we can't have it be known that we killed the bookie or else it's going to be a huge turf war. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think. Are you I, asking? I, 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 that's what I got, and I'm asking
0: <laughs> you if you came away with the same thing or not. Because I wasn't 100% yeah, clear, but I believe I, that's what it was. They do
4: have a conversation there, and um, uh, it's my understanding that it, they didn't go into this relationship thinking to set him up, but I think once he owed the money, then they figured out that this was how it was going to play out, and they kind of strong armed him into all of doing all of this, knowing full well they were going to have to rub him out at the end. So obviously you can't tell him that going into it or he'll never do it in the first place. Yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, I don't think the expectation was ever to wipe out the debts. The expectation was always, we had this guy on the string, uh, you know, he owes us, uh, so we're going to get him to do this thing and then we'll take him out after, um, you know, and then we all win. It's a win-win. Yeah, and it's kind of funny
0: because like I said, this whole scene is, is very well orchestrated. I think it's the one time that there is a good amount of suspense and we do get sure. an effective, uh, you know, cat and mouse chase, so to speak. Although in, you know, something of what's been established throughout the rest of the film, kind of anticlimactic. Because uh, once again, I think he just pretty much leaves without much, uh, you know, celebration or just kind of
4: manages to escape last minute. And he's just like, oh, yeah, he got out. But uh, there is quite a bit of film left at this point. Yes, in true. The- uh, in the cut I had uh I don't know about your cut there's a, there's not I really have, a ton i mean there's a there's i have a in my notes bit. um it, it was around this time or maybe right before uh I have um it, I will say it's weird because there's uh there's 40 minutes left and 40 oh, minutes wow. right now could be action um or watching a guy check coats. Oh, no, I that. think I think there's about, go either way. I think
0: there's about 15, no more than 20 minutes left after they leave the parking garage.
4: OK. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, is it going to be the the like the the intense scene, uh, you know, and, and all of that wind down or, you know, is it going to be and then a cool you know, French connection, you know, high intense car chase, like bullet, you know, kind of yeah. deal. Or is it going to be just in the cabaret hanging out? <laughs> sophistication and guy checking coats. And we follow that guy and see what a day in his life is like. Cause this movie is so inconsistent that way. Yeah. Uh, just the you know, at least the version I saw where again, it kept taking me out of it. Uh, and it would give me these nuggets, these cool nuggets of plot development, character development, uh, you know, character arcs and so forth. But then it would also give me all this extra shit uh, that I didn't need. Um, and so, it, you know, it, I never really knew what to take from it or it's like, okay, now we're in it and then we're not. And then we're in it and then we're not. It just kept stalling out. Like someone trying to learn how to drive a manual uh, transmission for the first time, you know, <laughs> that what of <it laughs> felt like watching this film.
0: Yeah, totally. No. So, so basically in the version that I watched, so, like I said, they're they're taking Cosmo to this parking garage to kill him. The big mob boss actually doesn't want to do it because all these guys actually kind of like Cosmo at this point, but uh, they just it's part of the job. So he leaves it to one of his underlings to do and then bails. Uh, Cosmo actually ends up killing that guy. It's the mustache guy who looks straight out of 1976, and then there's this other guy who's kind of like the quiet, dark-haired guy, and he's the one who ends up chasing Cosmo through the parking garage. Like I said, it's a, it's a very effective cat and mouse sequence where the gangster is constantly trying to, like, throw shit and make noise to distract and draw out Cosmo, but Cosmo is smart enough to not fall for the bait. Eventually, it's a little anticlimactic because Cosmo just kind of escapes without much, like I said, celebration or uh, ceremony, and then he goes back to his girlfriend's house, and that's where his... So his, his girlfriend lives with his mother, and... They, you know, she's basically closer to Cosmo's age than than her daughter, who's his girlfriend. And so they have something of a nice relationship. She sees that he's bleeding out from the stomach. And because of that is basically like, look, you know, it's one thing that you run this sort of, you know, CD peep show that my daughter participates in. And, you know, you've always been good to her and taken care of her. And that's cool. But like you're into some shady shit here. And, uh, you know, you, you, you got to get out. You can't you can't stay here. You can't come here. You can't see my daughter. Uh, if you you know, if you're gonna be going and getting shot in the gut, yeah, I don't want her part of that life. You gotta you gotta bail. So uh, she pretty much throws him out, and then he goes back to the club and basically his entire team of people, you know, Mr. Sophistication and all the girls, are, are kinda getting booed at this point, and he has something of a, you know, rally the troops, get the gang back together moment. And it's actually this really effective, like four to five minute monologue that he goes on, and he's talking about you know, the, the, the value and the necessity of work and, you know, kind of just trying to, Hey, you know, guys, let's pick our heads back up. Shit happens, blah, blah, blah. Like he's really, he's really a good leader. You know, he's always very supportive of his people and, and, and he doesn't really,
4: yeah. But does that make a good movie? Them. Like where did you but but I really, I really, I really like, I really the like that monologue. The narrative? I
0: actually really like yeah. that monologue to the point that I'm going to go ahead and play it here so that our listeners can, can judge for themselves and see what they think. Which, yeah, a this? lot of people
3: kid themselves, you know, <laughs> they they, they know when they were born, they know where they're going, they know go, whether they're gonna go to heaven, whether they're gonna go to hell. They think they know that. They kid themselves, right? But the only people who are, you know, happy are the people who are comfortable. That's right. That's right. Now, you take uh, the, the Carol, right? Yeah.
5: Don't take, take her too
3: care, far. All all to do. <laughs> lady, you know. oh, no! <laughs> a ding-bat, right? A ding-a-ling. A dingo. That's what people think she's she is. Because that's the truth they want to believe. But uh, you put her in another situation, right? Put her in a situation that's tough. Stress, where she's up against something, you see she's no fool. Right. A little
5: silly,
3: but... Yeah, cool. right. Because what's your truth is my falsehood. What's my falsehood is your truth and vice versa. Well, look, look at me, right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. You understand? hmm Yeah. And that takes work. Gotta work overtime for that. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter who you are, what personality you choose. Come on, baby.
2: Come, Come on, on, baby. Boy.
3: Choose a personality.
1: Come on, get so let's go down there I'll and. i will you a rundown after the show. Right. Hey, we'll boy. do a great show. Oh, watch it We'll smile.
3: <laughs> we'll cry big, glistening tears that pour onto the stage, and we'll make their lives a little happier, huh? So they won't have to face themselves. They can pretend to be somebody else. Be happy, be joyous. Come on, you, maestro. Come
5: on, there's a showdown. Give me the downbeat. Okay. The downbeat.
0: And yeah, Ryan, I I did really like that about his character. I did like the speech that he gave. I was engaged. It's it's kind of of the Jason Patrick moment. It's a single-take monologue where it's just him smoking cigarettes and talking about what he thinks about working and and managing a team. And and I, I thought that it was a nice summation and, and it was consistent with his character like we said you know we saw him at the phone booth checking in to make sure that his business was running and he just did this thing successfully he just managed to escape with his life even though he is bleeding from the stomach and i thought <laughs> right so is he giving this monologue <laughs> while he's bleeding out absolutely like, yeah he does all this shit while he's bleeding out dude he's been bleeding out this whole time uh pretty much yeah. since he left you know so yep um and then uh yeah, and then he also gets on stage after that. He does, So, you know, he pumps the team back up, and then he gets actually on stage, and he addresses the audience, you know, for the first time, at least in the film, that we've seen from the stage. You know, he puts himself out there, and he delivers another pretty effective monologue. I didn't think it was quite as uh, good or necessary, let's say, even as the previous one, because we just got that. But, you know, we do see that he puts himself out there, and then, uh, and, and then he after he does that you know he says cheers to the audience the show goes back on and he walks out and uh, you know just walks down the street bleeding from the gut and we're left to wonder whether or not he survives or not and that's how that's how my version ended how about yours
4: yeah, no, that's the deal. Okay. And he checks his coat and he sees it's covered with, you know, blood or whatever. Yeah. But it did look a little fake. On camera, it was so weird
0: we in the 70s, dude. That 70s blood that's just red paint. <laughs> right.
4: It's literally yeah. red
0: paint. And it's like, yeah, so I was weird. like, because
4: in my mind, I'm thinking, what he sit in? Did he brush up against some shit or something? Like, oh, that's that blood. was just okay, 70s blood, dude. I don't know why they did yeah. it that way. So here's my take on all that. I think that's horse shit. I think that's. <laughs> 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 uh I think that uh you know the, the movie's over like the 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 bookie's killed he gets away from the mob we get that intense parking lot scene the whole bit he goes and then the wind down should have been him going to his girl's house and getting kicked out then when we go back to the club by the way I've spent a lot of time in this fucking club by now <laughs> it's it, it, i it kind of reminded me of like I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Like, uh, let's say Indiana Jones, like uh, Raiders of Lost Ark, and he does the arc and he kills the Nazis and the spirits. The Ark of the Covenant opens up and all that shit. Then we go back to his classroom. And then we watch him deliver a a speech to his class for 20 minutes and he goes to a PTA meeting and he's talking to the parents of the class and he's like, you know, little Johnny's got some potential and he's just not showing up, you know, and I think, and all that may be good, but what the fuck does that have to do with the Ark of the Covenant? We were killing Nazis 20 minutes ago. Like that was dope shit. And then you know the spirit of God was out and the Holy Ghost and all this nonsense and uh, and now we're just going to PTA meetings and giving pep talks. Meanwhile, Indy's got a bullet in his gut uh, that you know uh, Hitler shot him in the stomach or whatever. And it's like, shit, is he still bleeding out or you know should he be going to this PTA meeting right now and, <laughs> and, and talking to his parents uh, about his son's football scholarship and how he's about to lose it? No, we wrap up and we see the 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 creative shit in the warehouse being pushed off, you know, top men and the big dramatic fucking score and the credits roll. Uh, That's the ending. So what the fuck are we doing going back to this cabaret? Now, mind you, I have had an additional 30 minutes in this cabaret than you have at this point throughout the movie. So I'm pretty sick of this cabaret. (laughs) Uh, And again, not that good of a cabaret and I can't stress this enough, you know, if it had some pep and pizzazz, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I was just over it. Well,
0: the one thing I will let you know because you, you've mentioned several times about some sort of coat checker. Uh, there's there's no following any sort of coat checker in the director's cut. So I don't know how many minutes that amounted to, but it sounded like a significant. No, amount No, I'm of using time. that hypothetically
4: as the as a metaphor for how boring that time in the cabaret was. <laughs> it's like we might as well have just been with him the whole time.
0: Understood. Understood. Well, okay. So this is what I will say, man, is that. To me, I, I I didn't feel like I spent too much time in the cabaret. I thought I thought that okay. I spent a little more time than I would have, but um, I didn't feel like I spent too much. But here's exactly what I will counter with, is that you're not wrong, and I don't even think Cassavetes would disagree with you. I think he knows that, and that's exactly why he made these decisions, Right? because he right. is right. Right. the yeah. original indie dude. And I think he was just like, fuck all that mainstream bullshit, fuck all the big theatrical stuff basically what what does every mainstream hollywood film do we're going to do the opposite and so i think there was a very targeted decision by him to end the movie that way and to allow us uh, you know rather than give us the you know the end dot 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 question mark
4: ending right i mean he kind of did it in a way but it was it was more subtle than it, that he did it was that anyway walking though. off bleeding out like and what the fuck that was the question mark ending and uh he had to you know Stuff that pillow full of feathers before you sent it out to send us off to bed, you know, like it was so <laughs> bloated, even the ending was bloated. And uh, and I keep uh, this is something I do keep saying that I'll stand by um, is that be- I, I feel like moments like that were done a disservice By all the extra bloat in the film. So, you know, uh, by the time I get to these moments that probably would have hit home or that I would have appreciated more uh, inside that cabaret, that final monologue, like what you're saying, I probably that is a great example of moments I would have appreciated more had I not already been there before uh, so many times and spent so much extra time, you know. I'm even talking about it too much. I'm sure our listeners are like, yeah, like this fucking podcast episode. (laughs) Uh, You're not wrong, uh, listeners. (laughs) Not
0: wrong at all. Not wrong at all. Just giving
4: you the full killing a Chinese bookie experience.
0: (laughs) Let's go ahead and wrap this film up in the spirit of that, Ryan. Why don't you give us your three adjectives for the theatrical cut of the killing
4: of a Chinese bookie? I will. These are all pretty obvious. I've already talked about all these, uh, so I don't need to harp too much on it. The first is a little hyphenated. Stutter stop because, uh, again, I, I felt like it was wanting to go somewhere and I kept wanting to go along for the ride. And it just kept, you know, uh, like I said, it, it, it slipping the clutch. The, the uh, equivalent of sitting to, in a stop and go traffic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or no, because even that you expect. No, this is like trying to teach your teenager how to drive on a an <laughs> transmission and they're slipping the clutch. and just keeps stalling gotcha, it again. Gotcha, gotcha. Start the engine and you got to start all over and you get back interested. And I just kept falling out of it. Uh, bloated. Uh, and this is nothing I'm not telling you that you don't already know. I'm not telling you anything that Cassavetes didn't know. Uh, again, he recut this fucker. So I watched the bloated version. So I'm going to call it what it is. It was bloated. It was bloated with a lot of extra stuff in that cabaret, in the strip club, sidelines, uh, You know things that are going off on the in the background that never really paid off. Um, and the last one is bad sex. Uh, I think that this movie is like bad sex. I think that... There are moments when you hit the spot and it's like, oh, keep doing that. That feels good. And then you're, just when you think you're getting into it, then that person changes up and they are like, no, you were right there. Okay, well. And they switch the positions and then you get into that and it's like, okay, I think I can make this work. And you're about to to bust and then all of a sudden they switch it up again or they stop or they're like, oh, I need a drink. You're like, no, I was fucking <laughs> right there. So this movie's is uh, very much like that as well. That uh, Jason, is, how about you? <laughs> that's amazing.
0: I can't even beat that. Uh, I got three boring ass adjectives here, but uh, they are they are on point, I believe. Uh, so the first one is gritty. You know, I think we, uh, we we see a lot of that, you know, gritty street vibe uh, from, you know, the streets of Hollywood to this kind of seedy. Uh, whatever you call it, peep show to the yeah, grainy God. film stock to the super close ups to the low lighting, the stark lighting. It's uh you know it's a really gritty experience and and that's kind of how most seventies films in this sort of genre are sure so but, uh, you know it, it definitely falls in line with that aesthetic uh it's it's also a meandering film for certain even the trimmer director's cut still does give us those tangents and and you know gives us those moments of Cosmo going to the cafe and having striking up the conversation with the girl and auditioning her and picking up the girls and dropping off the girls and giving the pep talk at the end so yeah it it is definitely a meandering film but that being said I'll still say that it's my third adjective which is an effective film I really did feel that it was effectively done. And I know that a large part of that. Yeah. And I know that a large part of that has to do with the fact that I was able to watch the much trimmer director's cut. But, yeah, I think that it did what it wanted to do. You know, whether or not that necessarily works for you. Because, again, you know, this style of filmmaking is not specifically for everyone. It does take its time. It's not super strict about the narrative. You know, we're not. It's really more of a character development film than it is, you know, a plot driven film, to be completely honest. And so that's not necessarily going to work for everyone. But I think that's the film and the style that Cassavetes wanted to present. And so in that respect, it's effective. So gritty, meandering, effective. Ryan, give us a formal grade rating for the theatrical
4: cut. You're not going to like this, Jason. I'm calling this a a D-plus movie. Uh, I I saw the D-plus version. I think there's a C-plus, B-minus movie in there somewhere. But uh, with the experience that I had uh, watching this film, and again, I think uh, everyone involved with this film may even agree with me. I know, um, again, Ben Gazzara had gone on record uh, notoriously disliking this film and then liking the the director's cut uh, succinctly. So, uh, yeah, I gave this D+. How about you? Fair enough, buddy. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, you know, I thought about
0: it, and uh, the director's cut, for me, is a four-star film, four out of five stars okay. for the director's cut. So,
4: see, that's probably a little higher than I would expect, but uh, I could see it. Um, you know, uh, uh, I I wouldn't argue with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so yeah. So, listeners, obviously. You know, if if you have the choice, and again, my apologies if I screwed you over, and you already watched the long ass uh, theatrical apology cut before. accepted, Jason.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: dude, yeah, we, we're a team, dude. You you just get to put up with my shit all the time, dude. Like. Yeah, yeah. that's just, it comes with the territory, right? It's like with my wife. It's like, oh, I don't have to apologize for my shit. Like, you know what you signed up for, buddy. <laughs> so to everybody yep. else, I apologize. But no, honestly, yeah. Ryan, I do. I am sorry for the miscommunication. Like, I really, you know, you, you know that I'm always worried that, like, I'm one long foreign film away from losing you. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, I definitely don't. I want to minimize that as much as possible. No, 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 no.
4: <laughs> I hate that I hate that I have that uh you know that I come off that way. There are so many <laughs> great indie films, but I'm going to call these things out for what they are. Yeah. And if, you know, if if uh if if a movie is kind of long and bloated and I was just listening to uh yesterday the latest episode of the uh uh Stay F Homecast, I think it's called, mm. with Paul F Tompkins and uh, his wife. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Jane Haddad Tompkins. And uh and she was going on and on about how she loved lives of others. And I almost <laughs> threw my fucking phone in the pond. So uh, That's. Fantastic. Anyone who's been with us. <laughs> well, Anyone I mean, who's been with us uh, for a while, uh, the the long time listeners, I hope there's some payoff there. Go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes uh, for Lives of Others, where Jason and I had our first cat fight, without uh, a film. And, uh, yeah, and yeah, and for the was... newer
0: listeners too, if you if 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 you haven't heard that episode, go back. I want to say it's like our third episode, maybe it's yeah, either the yeah. third or fifth episode. One. And uh, yeah, it is, that was a uh, that was actually before we had the theme song, dude. That was back yeah. when we had like my long winded minute and a half talking about trailers and basically chasing all the and potential to listeners away. What this
4: was and all Here's that, all right, the yeah. reasons you don't want
0: to <laughs> listen to the show that you're about to listen yeah. to. My name's Jason and I have a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but it's still, uh, once you get past those first couple minutes uh, and, we, and we settle in, as we tend to, uh, it is good. And yes, it is our first, yeah, it was the, the first film not. that we dramatically disagreed on 100%. And I was right. (laughs) We're going to go ahead and get to a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up with a comparison feature.
2: What goes into a bottle of fine wine? One must start with the vines as we do. Hand-selected. Spending countless minutes withholding urination to make sure we get it just right. Introducing, Vincent Gallo Winery. Established in 1998, our grapes are aged no longer than 18 years. Each one hand chosen from the vine and taken against its will to be planted with care in our foggy ancestral vineyard of Buffalo, New York. Our signature Stockholm Cabernet brings notes of bowling maple and pine and pairs perfectly with the four-player X-Men Arcade. Our Lost Chances Chardonnay is meant to be enjoyed with thin tortilla crisps and a savory liquid cheese blend. Impatience. Anger. Frustration. These are the qualities we put into bringing out every subtle note in each bottle. Vincent Gallo Wines. Shut the fuck up and enjoy.
0: All right, Ryan. So this episode's going to be a little bit different because generally speaking, you know, sometimes listeners, as you know, if you listen to the show regularly, we may or may not do the comparison feature really depends what we're feeling. We used to do it all the time back in the day. Now we just kind of do it if there's something to talk about, because we didn't want to waste your time, quite frankly. And uh, we do have some comparisons here that are really strong, so we're going to go ahead and get into the comparison feature. But what we are not going to do is we are not going to pull any random films for next week. Why? This is the last full-length episode, as we announced previously, of season one. And the next episode that we are going to record is going to be the last of the season. It's a half episode. And for those that did not hear the announcement previously, we are going to be doing Willy's Wonderland to cap off the so season.
4: fucking excited. I'm
0: so stoked about this, dude. Uh, this is Nicolas Cage fighting off animatronic killer Chuck E. Cheese robots, basically. It's basically Five Nights at Freddy, the movie starring Nicolas Cage, but without the licensed adaptation. That, that's kind of the vibe that I get. So uh, there's yeah. some kids there, you know, and uh, and it's actually just to let people know, by the way, uh, that's going to be a VOD. Uh, so, you know, I, I believe they're still charging the full theatrical rate of like 20 bucks. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a little bit on the pricier side, but it is brand new and it does go to helping support the film industry that has been so tanked over the last year and change so um, you know go ahead and check that out Uh, maybe in time it will hit one of the streaming services you can get it with a subscription but for right now uh, it is going to cost you that $19.99 but if you don't want to spend the money hey you just listen to the episode we'll be there to guide you through the whole thing so you know another reason to listen to us Ryan let's go ahead and get into this comparison feature why don't you tell us what you got to kick us off
4: I got a couple of things. Um, For starters, Buffalo 66, uh, you know, talking about Gallo versus Cassavetes. Obviously, they're two uh, indie cinema darlings to an extent um, making do with what they had. Uh, But even further still, with movie to movie, uh, I like something that you said earlier in the episode, which was that uh, this uh, Chinese killing of a Chinese bookie uh, and Buffalo 66 to me were both more about themes than they were actual characters sure. or m- maybe they're they're about characters but not necessarily plot yeah. um i could sum up both of these films and you know i mean you, i could i could really show you the entire plot of these films and do it without trimming too much and probably 30 minutes or less sure uh as far as what the characters need to do to get from beginning to end uh, a lot of the end is or a lot of the middle is uh, just a lot of, you know, watching the characters do things or building mood through various ways or even just moments of silence uh, and watching the characters uh, like Gallo sit in the bathtub and talk with Christina Ricci or, um, you know, the photo booth, photo booth scene or whatever. Uh, and then Ben Gazzara and, and uh, you know, him just going through his day and picking up the women one by one, dropping them off one by one, talking about the business and all these things. Um Lots of payphones, uh, <laughs> kind of a those you don't see those anymore. Uh, can I borrow a dime? You know, one of those type deals. Yeah. And uh, I will uh, add as well that I wish, I wish that the CD club. Now I know that we're in Buffalo and and we're in Los Angeles or whatever, but I do wish that the uh, club that Ben Gazara owned uh, in. Bookie was the same uh, club that he was performing uh, in back in the day that and uh, from Buffalo '66. I would love to have seen G- Gazara get up there on that stage and sing that song that he sung for five minutes <laughs> in Buffalo '66 <66 laughs> on the Cabaret stage when he took the mic at the very end, maybe bleeding out. Um, you know, somehow connecting, being the connective tissue between these. Uh, films.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great, dude. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of that was you know probably the biggest takeaway that I had as well. I thought it was interesting, too, that there were so many... Because we just, you know, obviously, to anybody that listened, we pulled these films randomly. And, you know, we're not doing something where we pretend like we're pulling them randomly. Like, we literally... Those those are all live random pulls that we make. We we literally don't know what we're going to get. And so it was really cool that there was also so many built-in parallels with the story. I mean, right off the bat, the fact that Ben Gazzara is in both these movies. Ryan, I... Have never seen Ben Gazzara in any movie ever prior to these two movies. I'll go you one <laughs> further. I didn't even know he was a man. I did not know there was a gentleman named Ben Gazzara out there in the world really? that acted in what? movies. I literally had no clue you who this dude was. Never heard of Ben Gazzara before. Never either. heard of wow. Ben Gazzara. And so all of a sudden it's like, on a platter. Hey, here's these two films starring this guy. And he did great in Bookie. I don't think we really went into the the performance too much. We were mostly just talking about, you know, the movie and the differences, but uh, I don't think we really mentioned like I really really enjoyed him in Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Not really so much in so Buffalo he, 66. It was kind of a rote
4: character and he yeah, and he didn't Yeah, he was kind of a throwaway character. Yeah,
0: and he didn't one. even sing the the song actually. I don't know if you saw that the song uh, that he yeah, sings. Right. It was sung by Vincent Gallo's father. And so, you know, it, it was fine. But I really, really liked him in Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I thought he killed it, and I thought he was very organic. No pun intended. Hey-oh. thought he was very organic performance, and and I would totally watch that dude in other things. So uh, the fact that, you know, that pairing came about. And Ryan, I don't know if you picked up on this as well. Both Cosmo and I don't remember. What's his name? Vincent? What's Vincent Gallo's name in the movie? Eh, whatever the hell it is. Oh, I don't... Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. So, so, but either way, so the the Ben Gazzara protagonist and the Vincent Gallo protagonist, they have the exact same setup for their respective situations. Both sure. of them placed a wager with the mob beyond what they could afford and... And then have to pay it off by doing something that they don't want to do. And Ben Gazzara's character offing this Chinese boogie and Vincent Gallo's character going and serving five years in place of this other guy. Yeah. So that was like, whoa. I mean, right there. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, just again, seeing Ben Gazzara in both these films and having both of these setups about, you know, having to to make up for a a bad bet, a bad wager that that they couldn't pay off. That was a really cool, very organic comparison. And yeah, and I won't really, you know, touch any more on, on what you said about just with regards to the way that both films um, look at uh, their characters and they're, you know, less plot driven, more character driven. That's 100% the case. And so piggybacking off of that, they both take this slice of life approach to telling their stories and their protagonist stories. So, so yeah, so I really enjoyed the director's cut. It's unfortunate that you didn't watch or the director's cut, and that you didn't enjoy the theatrical cut. But I do think you know, give it some time, Ryan, and then go back and watch the director's cut. I, I do actually
4: think you might enjoy it, just based on what you said. I'll tell you who I really love that we didn't mention. I don't think one time, except for the intro uh, to the to this part of the show, is uh, Seymour Cassell. Cassell fucking killed it in this movie. The guy Mort, the mafia guy that owned the 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 bookie uh, situation. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 he's yeah, in Bookie. Uh, he, he's fantastic. Uh, and he that guy's been in fucking everything. The moment I saw him, I recognized him right away. Um, and lastly, I will say you have seen Ben Gazzara because uh, he was the infamous Jackie Treehorn in The Big Lebowski. Oh, which shit. A million times. I Yeah, so, never picked up on that whatsoever. Yep, yep. So anyway, thought I'd uh, bring that up as well. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, big fan of Seymour Cassell. He crushed it in that film, uh, maybe even more so than... Gazzara, but Gazzara did a fantastic job. Definitely. So, guys, uh, as
0: we let you know, you know, we don't do a huge amount of pimping offline for uh, you know subs and things of that nature. But if you like our show, if you enjoy what we do, the best thing you can do to help us out is give us those likes, give us those subs, and tell your friends, man. Uh, you know, if if you like movies as much as we do, and you've got other people, tell them to chime in. And, uh, you know, also go ahead and and if you've got comedy friends, you can go ahead and kick them towards the comedy sketches that we have. And as a reminder, uh, we love to hear from you guys. You know, Uh, we do have uh, we've started to get some people reaching out, but uh, we'd like to hear a lot more from you guys. See what it is you like in general, what you like about the show, what you hate about the show. And of course, we want to know what muffin you're eating and how much you're enjoying it, because we know that there is a large contingent of muffin enjoyers and that's not a euphemism talking literal muffins you get in a cafe that enjoy this program Uh, we've heard from tons of you and so we want to keep that going ryan i'm not sure if i'm gonna switch it up for season two i've been thinking about it like huh maybe we should uh you know speak to the eclair crowd uh you know maybe maybe the crepe crowd in really enjoys us Uh, I haven't figured out exactly which pastry. Or maybe I'll just keep harping on the muffins. Who knows? Either way, we want to hear from any and all of you. And we've got a few different spots that you can reach out to us. The first is on the old Twitter. And that's going to be at Esoterica Cinema. If you don't like being restricted to characters, you can always hit us up on the old email. That's Esoterica Cinema at gmail.com. And you can rant and rave for as long as you want. And then do be sure to check out our Instagram. We've got a really lovely Instagram. And uh, there's a lot of quotes from the film and cool artsy posters on there. And people seem to really enjoy that. So that's going to go ahead and wrap up this penultimate episode of Esoterica Cinema. We will be back in two weeks for our very final episode of season one, where we look at Willy's Wonderland. Have a great one, and we'll see you next time.
6: From the imagination of acclaimed author, Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventnor, in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar-hopping to exercise, but when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashna McCauley is a -a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout. Available now in e-book, hardcover and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.